Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a pleasure to bring to you my next podcast guest. He spent 19 years as a federal agent with Border Patrol, Customs, and ICE. Three years with the Department of Defense. He was enlisted as artillery, then commissioned in infantry. Spent some time in the National Guard conducting human intelligence. He has a BS in law enforcement. That's bullshit. He has a master's in forensic science and a doctorate in strategic security. Ladies and gentlemen, Trump asked him about how to enforce the border and what kind of fucking wall to build. Welcome to the stage, Dr. Jason Piccolo. Thanks so much for having me. That's a heck of an intro. Every time I hear that, I'm like, that's me? Who's that guy? <laughs> Who's that sexy fuck? <laughs> then these people see me and they're like, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, bro. Wait a minute. Are, are you the guy? <laughs> no, I, uh, I appreciate you making the time to come here. I know uh, you've been interviewing your ass off uh, both here in Texas and all over the country. And obviously with the current political situation with the, both the election coming up in 2020, and all of the bullshit that's associated with the border and immigration and both sides demonizing the other side over, uh, you know, everything. It's, it's a really good time to have somebody with the breadth and depth of your experience to come on the show and give uh, both background, context and perspective to, uh, you know, the situation that we find ourselves in as it relates to immigration. So I'm really, really glad that you uh, took the time to come here and, and are willing to come on old mic drop. No, I've been looking forward to it. I mean, I love Texas. Yeah. We we talked about, you know, 10 minutes before I came on, but I love Texas and Florida. And I think this trip is going to be my my nail that says, you know what, I'm, I'm retiring in Texas. Yeah. Well, we'd love to have you. It's a, it's a good, really good state to live in for a number of reasons. But uh, all right. So I know you've, you've heard a few of my episodes. Uh, so there's always that lightning round of, of uh, different questions. I don't, mine aren't too crazy for you, given the, the amount of information that we're going to cover on this one. So I want to jump right into it. But uh, I am curious, what is your favorite booze? Is it rum? It is absolutely rum. Yeah, it's Kraken rum. Kraken rum. Kraken rum. That's a good rum. team guy brand. I love right? it. A lot, a lot of team guys like the Kraken brand. As a matter of fact, I think I wrote this book with uh, 90% Kraken, 10% water. <laughs> no shit. That's just from ice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Best vacation spot you've ever been? <clears throat> best vacation spot? Wow, that's going to be easy. Well, you know, I got little kids, so my best vacation spot's actually a Disney cruise. 
Oh, no, no shit. The it's cruise, just, not, not yeah, Disney. Yeah, just like chilling. Well, I love going to Disney, but you know yeah. the cruise, you can go and just chill. The kids yeah. do their thing. What uh, what's the deal with the cruise? And like, is is it just Disney themed, or is there actual shit to do on there? That nah, there's a bunch of stuff to do. You know, my kids are eight and ten now. Last time we went, I think they were six and eight. Yeah. So yeah, there's a ton to do. Yeah. And you know, you get to go to their little island. Oh, that's the cool. thing is, you know, the food. And yeah. I don't miss. I don't miss a meal anymore. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you and me both. I am curious. What's the most apprehensions in one day that you ever had uh, while you early on in your career while you were focusing more on that? Probably just 16. I was border patrol, and that's like that's really low. Yeah. Nowadays, like you know, the groups in the 90s, like I had really good buddies that were getting like groups of 100 plus. And yeah. nowadays, the, the guys and girls out there are probably getting 80, 90, 100 bodies each. I mean, so would you count? You'd count that as as apprehensions, I guess, from a individually, like how many times, whether it's one person or a hundred, like how many how many instances did you catch? a group or a person or whatever in one day like was there are there days where you you'd six seven eight times in one day you'd roll people up or on a shift or you could but the thing is now let's say i was working the atv unit it could be something like that yeah but when you're up in the mountains and you're tracking and that's one thing i miss out of everything out of my whole law enforcement career when you're tracking someone you could be tracking a group you know eight nine ten hours and then you you finally at the end of the day grab that one group and you're done. Yeah, you know, and it could be like a group of one. Yeah. You know, but hey, it's still. And so, in turn, just for for the listener, and I mean, I, I'm fairly familiar. I've got you know a number of buddies and that work for CBP, but uh, I like to give some people kind of the inside look. I mean, from a, just kind of a curiosity standpoint, like when you roll a group up. If there's not anything crazy like a bunch, you know, they're drug mules or they have weapons or anything like that, it's just kind of a run of mill, run of the mill thing. Like how how long does it take to to do that? Like to to take them, process them, whatever. Like is it several hours? Well, the good thing is you um, now if you're the, the way it was back when I worked was you'd you'd go out and do the apprehension, then you hand them off to a transport agent who yeah. then takes them back to process, which okay. is great. Yeah, so uh, they, they do all the bullshit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You get to sweep in and do the sexy shit. What's uh, what's the craziest excuse? that you've ever been given by somebody on the border for, for anything? Like, is there anything that stands out? Like, you know, cops always have like, Oh, these aren't my pants with fucking heroin in them or whatever. No, not, at, not at the border. But you know, when I worked customs and stuff, it's like, I didn't know that was in my car yeah. when you talk dope. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, you know, there's, I just <laughs> there's bought like, this car. There's only 40 keys of weed yeah. in your trunk or anything like yeah. that. Yeah. No shit. Well, we're, uh, we'll definitely get into a lot of the, the cool stories that you share at the beginning of the book. I am curious, uh, I ask this to everybody, what does your morning routine look like? Uh, coffee. Yeah. What time coffee. do you get up usually? Uh, I usually get up around 530. And everybody gets up too fucking early. I don't want to get up at 530. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. just need to get coffee and get to work. Yeah. Pick the kids up at the end of the day. Yeah. Any uh, any working out or, or breakfast or anything before? Um, I do eat breakfast. <laughs> working it? out, I'm getting there. I just got yeah. this Peloton bike. Yeah. My wife's like, you know what? You uh, <laughs> fucking Peloton. <laughs> when you get back from Iraq, you're 198 pounds, and that's like a whole body inside yeah. of you right now, right now. <laughs> What uh, what does breakfast look like? Breakfast right now is the hard boiled eggs. That's and it. that's basically it. Yeah, no shit. You doing the keto thing or no? I, I like hard boiled eggs. I like those little uh, Costco shakes, the cheapies, oh, the yeah. uh, vanilla shakes. Yeah, no, I got you. Um, all right, so from reading your book, that oh, uh, hold on, I thought you were going to ask me my favorite carry, Glock forty three. What's up? Right. Well, I, mean, <laughs> I, I try not to be too fucking predictable. Okay, you know, but, uh, <laughs> but since you brought it up, Glock forty three, that, like that's your go to, huh? That's my go to off duty gun. That's my movie theater gun. I call yeah. it. You, do you ever roll the nineteen or or twenty six? Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. To me, I, I I definitely do nineteen and forty three. But uh, the the only thing that like the forty three, I generally do same kind of thing like movie theater or if I'm in running shorts or something, going to you know a quick errand or whatever. I'm I'm 
looking at actually getting a new SIG, yeah. SIG Compact. Yeah. Everybody's talking about it, and I'm like, I love it. Yeah. What uh, What's the nomenclature on that? Is it the three... Three nine, fuck, I don't even remember what I it can't is. Remember, but it P3, three, we're going to have to go. 380 maybe, I don't know. It's going to be in the comments. Yeah. Someone's right now yeah. going, hey. Someone's going to talk shit. Uh, yeah, I've, ha- I've had a number of guests come on and say that uh, that a newer SIG is their go-to. And it's like, it's fairly compact, but it still has like, uh, I think a 17-round mag cap. It's, it's pretty fucking nuts. And I got the, uh, well, I love SIG. I have a SIG pistol, the uh, the 5.56. Five, hmm. But it's a Border Patrol commemorative. It's really awesome. Oh, shit. And then for my 10th anniversary, my wife got me a uh, Sig Scorpion 1911. Oh, really? So yeah, that's a good I love one. Love it. Yeah, but the Sig 556. That's the model number, or that's what it shoots? No, that's a. It's the pistol. You know how they make a pistol gun? It's actually the Sig 400. So it's, but it's the. Uh, it's, it's like a. It it's like the, an M4 carbine, but, yeah, it's just, but with the know, arm brace or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fucking pistol. That cracks <laughs> me up. All right, so going over your book, uh, which we're going to pull up, I've got some excerpts out of it. Uh, so you wrote a book, obviously, it's called Unwavering, A Border Agent's Journey from Hunter to Hunted, which is coming out soon via uh, our good mutual friend Nick Irving and th- uh, is it Reaper 33 or 33 Publishing? Yeah, 33, 33 Degrees. Degrees Publishing. Uh, 33 Degrees Publishing, which... Uh, Shout out to Nick Irving, my second guest uh, with the Reaper book that was awesome that everybody loved. But uh, started his own publishing company, and this book is coming out of that, which I'm stoked for for both of you guys and uh, and happy to support it. I found it very interesting reading through this. Um, a couple of things is number one is how much you moved all over the fucking place, both growing up and uh, you know throughout a lot of your adult life. Where where did you? Can you give us kind of a synopsis of where you grew up and where you actually called home? I call home New Jersey. Now, I was born in a small, I couldn't, actually, I, I grew up in a small town, but I was born in Booton, New Jersey, which is right outside of uh, New York City, about 30 minutes. Grew up there. My dad was Brooklyn. They moved over, met my wa- uh, my mom, not my wife. It's weird. For, easy Freud. Yeah, quick one, quick one. <laughs> and then we, uh, we moved all over the place when I was a kid, uh, including Florida, Virginia, everything. Then we came back to Jersey, and then I... When I was in sixth grade, I started, I lived in a place called Blairstown, New Jersey, which is right next to the Pocono Mountains. Yeah. I literally lived a mile from the Appalachian Trail. Oh, no shit. And there was 5,000 people in my town. And people, the green part of New Jersey, people yeah. understand it. Yeah. Jersey's green. Yeah. Was there until I was 20, and then I joined the Army. Now, growing up, did you uh, did you have siblings? I had two brothers. What well, I have two brothers. I, I know uh, we'll, we'll get into, into your brother, Mike, but... What was kind of the overall feel growing up with uh, with the siblings? Well, I like to say I'm not really a fighter, but my brothers are both boxers. One yeah. was Golden Gloves champ. One was Diamond Gloves champ. Sure. And one brother was a my brother Brian. He's still alive. He'll probably listen to this. He better listen to it. He was a brawler. I mean, yeah. I saw him go into the ring and just the first bam right in the nose. Dude, just yeah. Fucking Mike Crushed. Tyson power or what? Yeah, yeah. big time. Sure. And uh, my brother Mike was the fastest. He was an absolute machine growing up. Yeah. And you'll probably bring up later on what happens with Mike and stuff and why. It, I'll, I'll kind of get it why it happened. But, man, he would run up the Appalachian Mountains. There, if The the mountains are like straight up, mm-hmm. and they had this what they call a pipeline. He would get on top of the pipeline and run up it, run 14 miles, come back, and he would... <laughs> Every time he got done training, he would drink a beer, and he would say, "It's magnesium." Yeah. So here, my he used to train Try my buddy. Try not to and cramp I, over here. It's it's magnesium, yeah, and water. But yeah, he was an absolute machine. Yeah. Never seen anything like it. So the the two of them boxed. You didn't get into boxing? Uh, yeah, I got in the ring. Uh, they actually box in a Lou Costello gym in Patterson, New Jersey, Abbott and yeah. Costello. Oh shit! And uh, you know, 
all the my brothers ran car cleaning companies because my parents were car cleaners, yeah. working, like professional car cleaners. Yeah. And so my brothers went on and did the same thing. So everybody from the gym would, you know, come and clean cars, yeah. and then they train. But yeah, I got in a ring with my brother Brian, and he whacked me in the side of the head. Like in a temple, yeah. I said, "You know, I think I'm good. I think I'm good." <laughs> Just one shot. One shot. I was yeah. th- I was 16. I was like, "Yeah, yeah. I think I'll go and yeah, uh, shoot not. some guns and hang are, out." Are they both older than you? Yeah, yeah. they're a four year. To- Brian is four years older than me, and Mike's eight. Yeah. Okay. Uh, were there any traumatic instances growing up um, that that shaped, you know, whether motivation to serve or uh, who you are today? Was there any any kind of big ticket items that took place that? Uh, that had that were you know legitimately impactful on you. Well, I moved out when I was a kid. My my parents split for a bit. My mom uh, had some issues. Dad had some issues. Uh, suicidal ideation and stuff like. So I went and moved in with my my best friend when yeah. I was uh, fifteen the first time, and then seventeen permanently. Really. So my best friend Dave and I ended up joining the service at the same time. So he yeah. went to Navy. Yeah. He wanted to be a SEAL, but they did the uh, colorblind thing. Oh yeah. Uh, so he went on and became a CB for five years. Yeah. And then I went in the Army. So that's kind of... And I was, you know, growing up watching Rambo and well, First yeah, Blood and all that. Yeah, it's one of the questions in terms of motivation to serve it. You talk about watching uh, Rambo. And, and uh, would you say that that had a, a profound impact in, in having having a, a piece of why you served? Or, or you know what really or? was? I When I was a kid, I would... Like, you know, there was no social media. There was no internet. And I would absorb every counterterrorism book in the world I could find. Carlos, Jackal, yeah. uh, that was it, everything I could. And then I was like, you know what? I really got into the LERP books, uh, Long Range Recon Patrol. And I read every Vietnam book, everything I could. And then you watch the, the original First Blood where he's like, you know, the vet. Yeah. The SF dude. The disgruntled kind of, asshole. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And hopeless wherever he was in yeah. British Columbia. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I watched uh, Rambo and fucking Predator and, and, you know, all the all the classics, I guess, in the 80s growing up. And one of the things that I think, you know, back then was hard to to imagine was, you know, seeing Rambo coming back, you know, being, you know, in sustained combat in Vietnam. Like, it was hard to imagine our our nation going through something like that again and now here we are you know basically in a in a in an almost unimaginable spot in terms of you know it's the longest sustained combat operations in the nation's history and that's the thing you know i joined the 90s army and this was when the only people that had the shoulder sleeving insignia on her right were desert storm Mm -hmm. with by the time i got in there was hardly anybody from vietnam and there was was some like you know, a crusty old sergeant major yeah. who you don't want to talk to him because he's going to yell at you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yep. No, I'm uh, I'm tracking. I mean, like I said, the the Rambo uh, shit growing up was uh, was a huge motivator. It's, it's weird to think of now, I guess, for me. You know how how history repeats itself, and and you see a lot of the same kind of uh, disgruntled nature of disabled vets and you know people coming back, uh, myself included, that are a little bit uh, skeptical and disenfranchised by the government, but. That's for another podcast or, or part of this one, I guess. <laughs> I could talk about that all day long. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which, I mean, frankly, is kind of the, the nature of the book, uh, you know, to kind of synopsize it in in a, in a simple sentence is, is exactly that, which we'll get into. But um, if you could talk a little bit about just your time in the Army, because it obviously it played a role. Uh, so you joined the Army, and, and uh, can you kind of just walk us through that? Sure. I, um, I went down to the recruiters. I initially joined a reserve unit. 
And um, I didn't know any better. I wanted to go airborne infantry, ranger, everything. So I went to the first drill at the reserve unit, and it turns out it's mechanized. Yeah. And the recruiter signed me up as an 11 Charlie, which is a mortarman. So I go up to the captain. And I'm not even like, I didn't even go through basic training. I go, hey, uh, so when can I go to airborne and ranger school? And he goes, <laughs> he laughed at me. He goes, you're never going to go there. We're mechanized. We're out of the middle of Pennsylvania. And yeah. we're in the reserves, and we're transitioning. This back before when the reserves had combat arms. Yeah. And they were starting to get rid of it. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to active duty. Like, I, I got to go. So I go down to my, uh, my recruiter, and my recruiter goes, hey, file a hardship that you can't live on the outside world and you want to go active duty. And this is in September. And anybody that's familiar with a fiscal year knows that September is like the dumping grounds. Of, yeah. So Not they had zero. artillery and they had carpenter. And I took artillery because yeah. the guy handed the, the recruiter was like, hey, here's a 75th scroll. Yeah. You're going to get in there. You're going to go all the way. Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. So, yeah, I joined the Army. I'm surprised he, he gave you the scroll. I remember thinking that when I read it, like, as coveted as those are, you know. Uh, you know what? And I guarantee you went down to the – and he was – and, you know, looking back at it, I don't even think he was combat arms. I think what he did was <laughs> yeah. – he's like, yeah, one of my guys gave me this. And I didn't know any. I was like, you know, yeah. 19 and a half, almost 20 at the time. Or, yeah. And uh, I'm like, oh, wow, this is the best thing ever. yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, it's been motivating people for years. Same with like a Trident. I mean, if guys were say like, "Yeah, here's what you're going to earn if you become yeah. a SEAL," you get people go down to the clothing and sales and just buy a stack. Yeah. Of them. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you do that, and then uh, you went to college in Minnesota after that, right? Yeah, Minnesota. Yeah. So my wife was in a in the service too. We met in a service, and we've been married forever. But she was an interrogator. I was artillery. How does that work for you at home? I mean, you're getting your balls busted nonstop. No, and, I, and that's the funniest thing about it is like she was an interrogator, but it wasn't like, you know, I like to say like later on I could actually interrogate her a million times better after being a special <laughs> agent. But she was a Russian, Serbo-Croatian, and German interrogator. Yeah. And she was actually, when the whole Bosnia thing, before it happened, she went to Germany and debriefed all the uh, Serbs mm-hmm. that were prisoners of war. And they used some of those to go to the Dayton Peace Accord. And then later on, when we went over there, they actually trained her up and sent her over there to go forward deployed with the infantry guys on, on patrol. Yeah. I'll tell you a quick story about her. So she's on patrol with these infantry guys, and she's obviously a female because this was the don't ask, don't tell type. You yeah. know what I mean? But anyway, she, uh, she walks up to a guy with a mule, and he's got an AK, and she goes, oh, you can't have that, and just grabs it. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's just, that's just typical. But yeah, we, uh, we, we didn't have kids back then, so it was kind of easier to... Yeah do our thing what uh, what was the experience in minnesota like so she was she was uh, essentially on active duty then no she got done uh we both went to college at the same time but she's from minnesota okay so we ended up just going to college yeah. i didn't know if i was going to go to college or not when i got yeah. out of the army i wanted to go straight into border patrol yeah and this was 96 and the border patrol offered me brownsville texas and i said you know i think i'm just going to knock out some college yeah i thought about becoming an emt first uh then i ended up just going to college yeah and and so at, at that point in college did you did you go straight through and get all of the qualifications you have or just your bs and then yeah just the bs mm-hmm. and i uh, did rotc at the same time joined the guard yeah i uh, knocked out my bachelor's pretty quick like two and a half years yeah and my we were going to go back active duty that's why i commissioned infantry and uh she commissioned uh, military intelligence but there was going to be like a six to eight month block away from each other and I'm like, you know, I'm just going to go on a border patrol and do my thing. Yeah. And so th- that was the next step you go to. Uh, I am curious about the, the border patrol. 
academy in Georgia. They they call it Flea Tech or Fletzy or what? <laughs> Flea Tech. They, the locals call yeah. it Flea Tech. Yeah. If you go anywhere out there, but it's called the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, Fletzy. Yeah. Uh, tell me about that. I mean, I know you talk in, in the book about. Uh, you know, kind of the the wide eyed folks that had never seen that shit, but it was it's very military like. I mean, yeah, it was. It was. It's what six months long. I think it was five back then. You had yeah. and back then you had to know Spanish, so like, you would go through the academy and you have a test of six months and ten months, and if you failed, you were out. You didn't have to know French Canadian for the uh, north part of the border. Yeah, so that's interesting. <laughs> what, t- can you kind of tell us? Uh, tell it's, us. It's very paramilitary. Yeah. You know the uniform, the inspections, the marching everywhere, the cadence. The PT, uh, learning how to do law enforcement in Spanish. Yeah. So you had to learn how to take someone out of the car, like, you know, sacieros or what I can't. I probably go through <laughs> if we go outside later on, drink some more coffee. I'll get my Spanish back. Yeah. But yeah, a lot of people that showed up there that weren't prior service thought it was the military. Yeah. And I write about that in a book about this one guy lays all his gear out and climbs the fence. Yeah, it goes I'm like, I'm like, bro, this is a job. You don't, you yeah. could just leave. You can quit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, he went, like he's breaking out of fucking prison, right? What, uh, what was kind of the overall, uh, feeling at the end of that in terms of what you actually learned? I mean, cause I know like say seal training, for example, it's, uh, you know, there, there, there is a learning process, but it's mostly a selection process. Do you feel that, uh, that that five months is uh, is adequate in terms of preparing guys. I know it's very different it, now. You know, but. it's like anything else. You know, you get out what you're going to get when you go to any training. Yeah. The on-a-job training was a lot more in-depth. Sure. And the station I went to was kind of in, unique at the time. You would have a fence line area, and then you would have the mountain. So you'd have different areas where you had to learn. And we had to learn a mountain. So when I get to the field training unit, uh, we had to learn every single alien trail. And some of these trails are like, you know, three, four hours down, and then you got to backtrack up like you're going to be tracking. And then you learn the whole tracking. Um, I was going through my basement the other day and going through some bins, and I found my old tracking cards that had like where I sketched out the, the canyons and everything else, where all the sensors were and all that. But, yeah, when you go to the academy and come out, it's a, a huge learning curve. Yeah. And so, I mean, it, it sounds like it, it's like a lot of academies or basic training programs where it gives you enough you know hit the reset button type of training to to be a a good soldier if you will and then Mm -hmm. wherever you show up that's where the where the real learning takes place and i i i thought it was cool you know reading your first part of being an agent uh, was in san diego uh, and looking at at the at the time i was there you know just starting out in the seal teams at the same time that you were there and i remember i mean down by brownfield and yeah. in some of our jump areas yeah like we used to see you guys jumping in all the time yeah. like, oh there's a seal yeah there's like we're like doing nighttime jump jumps yeah. there was times where like the wind would be off and we'd be way the fuck out and we'd actually run into some of the, some of your guys uh-huh. they'd be like you know it, there'd be a little bit of deconfliction there because we'd be you know way the fuck out and that's the exact but, area i worked like yeah. that that mesa area you guys landed in was where I have ATV units, and then the mountains, the Ojai yeah, Mountain. Yeah. yeah. And at, uh, one thing, one of the excerpts I have from your book, I actually wanted to read uh, as it relates to that time in your, uh, in your career. Uh, and this, this is something that, you know, the reason I highlighted it is that I, I, I think it's imperative for, uh, you know, the, the listener to understand that, that this is actually how it is because it is a, a misperception, I would say. And uh, you say, the common perception is that border with infrared drones, night vision, and massive amounts of agents, you'll catch all the traffic coming from Mexico. This isn't true. The border is a thousand miles plus long and not enough agents to patrol every crevice and canyon, river, or mountain. 
You need skilled and trained men and women on the ground on their two feet or with the help of four wheels. Obviously, you were in a uh, in an ATV unit, but can you kind of um, well, I go was, a little deeper into that? I, you know, I like to, I don't toot my own horn, but it, well, actually, I get kind of, uh, my buddy Chris got me onto this mountain unit. And he, uh, he he taught me everything I really needed to know. He was this kind of guy. He was awesome. He would just drop down into a mountain by himself and come up with, like, uh, huge groups. And um, one time, you know, you talk about the mountains. He was dropping down into a trail, and uh, three guys laid up waiting for him, jumped him, tried to choke him out with his motor wall wire. He was lucky enough to get a round off before they took off. But people don't understand these borders or crevices. And, you know, you have police with... A thousand, not a thousand, but you have helicopters up, you have everything else, trying to find one suspect. Can you imagine you're out in the middle of these like deep canyons, the, the woods, trying to find yeah. migrants? You just All the technology in the world is not going to help unless you have people that can go out there and track and can find them. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things, you know, especially in the, in the hotbed border debate that you hear nowadays is you know there's there seems to be a lot of people that a don't know jack shit about anything that you know are are these self-proclaimed experts about it but also is that it's not a just do this and it's fixed you know and that's on both sides i mean i I try to keep a a pretty objective non-biased opinion and and you know for people to say you just need a wall like that's all you need no it's not there's no way but on the other side of the token like to say you just need people and technology or or smart technology to, to monitor it like motherfucker you need you know bottom line is you need people doing it i mean is that yeah i mean, I mean well that, think about well you were there in the 90s and yeah. uh, early 2000s remember the, the fence line the fence came in 1990s under operation gatekeeper under actually clinton and it was a 14 mile fence from the pacific ocean all the way up to the otai mountains yeah and that shifted all the traffic east mm-hmm. and I, I always try to explain i i try to stay right in the middle whenever i talk about this i'm like you need special agents to take care of the cartels. You need immigration reform up here, and you need addiction counseling. On the on a border, you need fences, something to funnel traffic to where you could focus your resources. You could focus people. And we're not talking about just going out there and arrest people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Border Patrol has Border Star units, which are your medical groups out there, to rescue people. Um, the other thing, too, is you need uh, you need these bodies on the ground. Yeah. Well, and, and so with those bodies, too, I mean, like one of the things that admittedly, like reading this book, there's actually a lot of things in here that, that I didn't fucking know, you know, and, and I mean, I've got a number of friends that uh, that I've talked to at length in, in Border Patrol. I've I've sold dogs to Border Patrol. Um, you know, I've, I spent over a decade, you know, in San Diego in a soft unit, like mm-hmm. continually, you know, interacting with you guys and whatever. And there was still a lot of things in here. I was like, holy fuck, I had no idea. I had no idea. You know, and you know, later on, we'll talk about when I became a special agent. I was a border patrol agent in those same areas. I didn't yeah. know all this was going on yeah. in San Diego. Yeah, no, it's it's nuts. Um, so going back to another thing that I wanted to uh, talk about in, in in your book, another another excerpt I wanted to read was uh, you mentioned about rolling up a family and this is again this is one of those things where it's very polarizing is that you know to to drag politics back into it on the left it's like oh they're all families and you know they're just looking for work and then a lot of like staunch right wing people are are like no they're all fucking criminals and drug Mm -hmm. dealers and and fucking human traffickers and rapists and all this other shit and it's again it's somewhere in the middle is is that there's both but one thing that that i found myself uh wondering i guess after reading this 
this excerpt was, uh, you know, basically to, to synopsize it is that you, you come across a, a small group of people, basically a family uh, or a small family group. One of the things you say is it was common to capture the same aliens on, a, on different days making the same venture north. What I'm curious about is 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 two things. Is one is because that was a family, and and you know it's like a guy and his kids, and they just have food and supplies in their backpack. And then, did you find that I would I hate to use the word corrupt, but influence your uh, decision making process in terms of the protocols? Like, did did you sympathize with people? Did you find yourself thinking that way at all? Uh, and also uh, to that quote or excerpt out of the book. That's another thing I think people don't realize is that now they don't. And I getting, know exactly what you're thinking. Yeah. No, it's everybody back then was, and, yeah. and that's what they call catch release. You're not well, catch release releasing them in the U.S., but back then it was voluntary return. So they they could either fight their apprehension, which is not going to get anything, and they're going to get detained, or they're going to get VR'd back to Mexico. Yeah. So VR was everybody, unless you came up with a guy who was a reentry after deportation, mm-hmm. who you could try to put him up for, um, try to convict him. Really, everybody's getting voluntary return to Mexico. Yeah. And it's even right. There was just, back then, it was so easy just to process. Quick finger, bam. I think his name was Ramirez, a serial killer, is when they finally, back in 2005, 2006, the, the railway killer, yeah. is when they actually started going to 10 print fingers, fingerprints. Oh. What were they doing? They were just doing what? Before that was just one finger, your index finger. Really? And that's why you can never tell who all these people were. You can say, hey, he got released, but they weren't running everybody's fingerprints through uh, NCIC or FBI. Yeah. So back then, regardless if you're family or not. Well, I know uh, one of the things that, that I found fucking staggering, frankly, one of my buddies in the Border Patrol that's in the Tucson sector said that uh, he's a, he actually had a shift where he caught the same fucking guy twice in the same mm-hmm. shift. And I was just like, how is that even fucking possible? You know, that's uh, what I mean. You, you turn them. They run to the end of the fence or wherever else they're going to go, and they're yeah. going to come back across. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's just, and we'll get into, you know, kind of the, the and, proposed solutions, but I mean, holy Well, they fuck. tried everything. Yeah. I mean, they used to uh, repat, repatriate people down to the tip of Mexico, wherever they could, but yeah. they're going to find their way back. Yeah. No, it's fucking nutty. Um, another thing, and, and I can certainly relate to this that I, I read out of here that uh, it, it shouldn't have surprised me, but uh, it did catch me a little off guard was the... You talk about the shelf life of agents uh, for burnout being ab- about five years, which, you know, special operations is, is there's a lot of similarities in terms of, you know, a lot of guys, you know, in terms of their operational shelf, shelf life, um, you know, is a little shorter than others. The, the point is, is that it's hard on people and, and it burns guys out fairly quick. Um, can you talk about, uh, you know, the, the day in, in the life of, of a border agent and, and why it's so hard on them and why that five-year shelf life exists. Well, it's, I call it the border burnout. It's like three to five years. And you get to a point in your career, like, you know, you're, you come out of the academy, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to change the world. Yeah. And then it's day in and day out. Like, like you mentioned, you, you catch the same people. And then let's say you're working dope and you're getting the same dope blows coming across, but you're never really getting the main guys. You're never, never getting the main targets. And you're just going day in, day out. Trying to raise a family uh, in that op tempo in the United States. Let's say you're living in like those Ar- those Arizona areas, like in Ajo. I love bringing up Ajo all the time because it's out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Where are your kids going to go to school? And then you always get, you know, you have people on the outside looking in and they go, well, you know what? You sign up for this. Yeah. And then that's why it's like, where do the, if you're on a border for five years, where do you go? Yeah. 
There's no mechanism to rotate agents in and out of the border. Yeah. Well, do you, do you think that uh, part of that is from a subject matter expertise standpoint? I know, again, special operations, like there, there is some harm in rotating guys in and out too much because mm-hmm. that, that subject matter expertise for that area and, and what have you. Well, that's exactly it. Yeah. How, how long does it take to become a subject matter expert in anything? Years. You know? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, and I, I read all the all the books and everything about the soft teams and all that, by the time you actually know what you're doing, yeah, you know, that's three years on the road. Same thing with the border. By the time you actually learn what you're doing, you're kind of like, wow, am yeah. I going to be doing this the rest of my life? Yeah. And so you talk about the challenges of, of defeating DTOs with high turnover and burnout. Can you, can you address that and, and tell, and kind of explain the DTO, you know, what that means? And, and well, a DTO is a drug trafficking organization. They're basically your cartels, your smuggling organizations. And you got to remember, weed has always been coming north, but the cocaine really started in the 80s. So you have these same organizations. They may not have the same leaders, the Chapos or anything like that, the AFO, but they're, everybody's working that drug system in Mexico has grown up with it. Yeah. They have 40 years of experience to work on. Now, we're sending agents down the border where they're learning a job three to five years. Some guy's been on there 10 years, not 15. But we're talking maybe a... You know, let's say you have a San Diego where you have 20 agents who really know how to take down a cartel. That's 20 people. How many thousands of people running these billion-dollar businesses down yeah. south? Well, and, and that aren't hamstrung by any fucking rules either. Yeah. You know, uh, to me, that I mean, that we ran into some of the same same issues. You know, we've got all these rules of engagement and, uh, you know, different different protocols that uh, depending on what fucking mood some, mm-hmm. Somebody is in that's that's dictating those, uh, you know, whether it's add-ons to the Geneva Conventions or whatever. But you know, we we were hands tied a and lot, and they have no rules on them. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, same with terrorists. You know, yeah. like they don't give a fuck. Well, know? I mean, look at um, and you know this as well as I do. You have the Zetas started using these tactics. Then guess who else is using the same one? AQIs, our car. We started using the same tactics Zeta yeah. did. Yeah, leaving uh, bullets, fingers, and everything else. Yeah, and no. we're over here. You know, drive around domestic yeah. vehicles. We can't get money for pay sources. <laughs> you're, you're getting arrested for uh, tasing somebody. You know, <laughs> like no, you should have pepper sprayed them. Meanwhile, they're cutting motherfuckers' heads off and setting them on fire. A- another element of this book that uh, that again, like it, it makes perfect sense. I had no idea that Border Patrol was was doing it. Uh, was the the first narco load that you? So you go, you cross over from being an agent into the HIDTA unit involvement if you can explain that and then talk about that that first narco load follow uh, where you guys end up getting burned can you tell that story because again this is something I, I didn't realize you guys were doing oh sure well i became a custom special agent and later on after uh, uh it became dhs that's your uh, that's your hsi your homeland security investigations and i was part of what they call high intensity drug trafficking area group so we were dea state local customs and we would work narcotics so my first loadout is we're, uh, we're following two minivans. And can, can you explain the process from why you were following them to like how sure. it's set up? I believe this is one where we had a source or even a canine hit. And if it turns out to be powder, you usually follow powder out because yeah. weed is a dime a dozen. And I can explain the thresholds of why we don't go after a lot of weed because it has to be like over a certain amount of pounds. Yeah. So canine hits or it was a source, I believe, on that story. And then we, uh, we end up following it out from the port. And we're follow it straight out. They, you bring the suspects in. They don't know their suspects. They don't know they're be followed. While they're inside, getting some immigration reviews, we we set up around a car and we follow it out. And we followed out two minivans. 
and they end up driving in the middle of um, middle of San Diego, and they go down a dead end road, and we have air up, and I'm just like, uh, what am I doing now? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, this is all new to me, and I think that's why they experienced it at Border Patrol Hub because I wasn't like dumbfounded. Yeah, and then we uh, we just end up taking off, and then you're clearing houses, and people are. So what happens? We the van sees us come, we get burned. Everybody jets from the van. They run towards a house. We end up just going, stacking, hitting a house, clearing everything, um, putting everybody in custody. And then you're you're coming up with you know two hundred pounds of of coke or whatever. And it just this is a day in and day out thing going on all the time. Yeah. And for me, the biggest thing that surprised me is, and again, maybe I'm a a fucking idiot, but I didn't realize that uh, even if it's, you know, entities within Border Patrol or or connected to, affiliated with, we're doing that. It makes perfect sense. Like, yeah. Well, that's, you know, the Border Patrol is completely separate, but Border Patrol did have anti-smuggling units back then, which were criminal investigator types. This is where I'm working for a completely different agency. But I, mean, I, I guess my, my point is is that I didn't realize that that was being done, period. Yeah. You know, that, mm-hmm. that it's like... And like I said, I had no idea either. Yeah. And I worked that same border. Yeah. Obviously, again, it makes sense to do that. One thing in reading it, I'm like, well, fuck, is that... Are, are you giving away the playbook a little bit by... No, this is day in, day out. And, and I mean, they, you could just... It's just they you follow a vehicle and you... Take them down. <laughs> is, how uh, how important? Not how important. How how likely is it that that they're on to you? I mean, how how difficult is it to maintain um, you know a, a level of of lower presence so that you're not tipping them off in that secondary inspection? Or is that kind of the, the cat no? And, and that's the thing part? is later on I became part of a, a proactive groups and a proactive groups they took everybody that kind of knew how to do the deal, how to do great surveillance, how to sit up on... Because we would sit on houses, sit on warehouses, sit on cars for two, three days at a time. This isn't like the FBI where you roll out a specialized unit that does your surveillance. Yeah. If you if you catch it, you clean it. You have to go out there and do it. So the men and women out there doing it now are very good. Mm-hmm. Very good. And you don't get burned as much as you think you are. Yeah. One thing uh, I'm curious of, in again, in reading that and being like, holy shit, you know, that, that element of, of the special investigator coupled with what they take down at the board, you say, you know, 200 pounds a day, you know, it's like it's a normal day. Is there an element of that that is detracting these cartels and, and uh, DTOs uh, from doing it? Or is, is, it, is it making it just difficult enough to where they have to reevaluate their tactics. I mean, because to me, it seems like. Well, they have TTPs just like we do. But what would you say the percentage is of, of shit that's actually being confiscated, coming, being caught coming across? 10%, 20%? No, I'd even. probably say maybe 5%. So I guess that's my point is like with it being, I mean, the amount of time, money, resources, you know, to get 5% of mm-hmm. something, I mean, you're putting guys' lives in danger. All day. All fucking day long. Uh, people are getting their heads cut off, and, and one of the excerpts I'm about to read here, you know, some brutal shit that takes place. I guess my question to you, looking back on it, having spent a, in a, a, an adult lifetime slash career in it, is, is, is it fucking worth it? Yeah. And the reason I say that is because we have the resources to do it. Now, everybody wants to throw money at a wall. And I always say, we need to throw money at hiring special agents. Mm-hmm. And we need to hire special agents, and we need to give them money to pay sources. Because you know as well as I do, when um, 
you know, when Iraq and everything first started, we didn't have a, a game plan to stay there. Yeah. Later on, we had to get sources in order to stop the cells. Same yeah. thing. It's all human. Yeah. We need to give millions of dollars, get sources, and take out these organizations from the inside. And the only way you can do that it was with special agents. Yeah. You can't put anybody in jail behind a computer, and you can't stop them by just arresting them and putting them in jail. Yeah. So I guess the, you know, I look at it, and this is where, I, you know, having been out of the military for 10 years now, um, you know, and, and having run my own business and, and multiple businesses at this point, you know, the, the businessman entrepreneur mentality mm-hmm. comes over and it's like five fucking percent. Like, you know, it's to cost me, doing business. Yeah. I mean, I guess I just look at it. It's like, fuck there, you know, if, if I'm looking at it and I've got a revenue stream, that's only netting 5%, mm-hmm. I, I got to figure out a better way to fucking do that. And that's one of the, one of the heartburns that I think most guys like us have with the military is that because it's not a business, they don't mind sucking at it. Yeah, you know, and and they don't look at things the way you kind of need to in terms of success. Well, I'd say the agents love it. Yeah, they can do something about it, but then you know you got the it's the what's sexy this year? Is it alien smuggling? Is it drug smuggling? Or is it going to be seizing money? Yeah. Well, for sure. I mean, the there there is a, a sexiness list that rotates a little bit, and what you know, what the buzzword is. That's a management is. sexy list. Yeah, though. yeah. But either way, I guess I, I look at it as that you know, if if somebody was asking me, hey, what do you do? Like, that's the first thing I'm going to look at is okay. Well, how how big of a difference is it making? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, we're getting about five percent. It's like, okay, well, I, I want you know the the twenty brightest motherfuckers in leadership positions to figure out a way to to you know. 10, 10 times that fucking number. Like you tell me what that's going to you take. Just, you, you, you mentioned something, Aaron, you got to remember this is the federal government. No, I know. And you say the 20 brightest people in leadership yeah, those, those positions. Don't, that's still hey, not I, doing I'm much. all for it, but I'm yeah. like, they have to get the right leaders. Yeah. I, I mean, to me, like I, I view it, you know, when, when I hear, you know, people in fucking Maryland talking about, we don't need a wall or, you know, bullshit or it's racist or, you know, whatever. <laughs> and it's like, first of all, have, have you ever even been to a border town? I mean, I fucking lived in one for over a decade. I was not in Border Patrol, but I, I see the, the consequences, see yeah. uh, number one. But number two is that irrespective of whether you've been there or not, is the fact is is that even the time I spent, like I still don't have what I would consider a, a valid opinion or, or an educated enough opinion on it. To me, it's like, what do you think? Mm-hmm. You know, find find people within the organization. And, and I, I say that all the time. I'm like, I, I, I say it to them. I would, I would gladly go down and testify in front of anybody, and I'll bring – People that know the border. Yeah. I'll sit, I don't even want, it doesn't need to be public. I don't get paid for any of this crap I do. I just yeah. want to fix the border. Get in a room, congressmen, congresswomen, whatever, yeah. and let's talk about the border reality. Yeah, because, I mean, to me right now, you've got, you've got people that, that really don't have any real perspective on it, you know, po- i.e. politicians. And to me, it's no different than guns, right? Is that you've got these people that are screaming gun control that have never even fucking shot one. You know, or, or people talking about, you know, drugs that have no real fucking concept. I call concept. it hip pocket journalism. Remember yeah. hip pocket training? I don't know if you guys did that in the Navy. What was it? Hip pocket training. You no. just kind of pull something out of your ass. Yeah, I mean, I, I do that most days. Yeah. I'm doing that right now. <laughs> no, um, but, you know, to me, it, like, that's one of the biggest problems with, with our, our government structure, I think, is, is a lot of these people that are making policies, they're not taking the advice and the um, and the expertise from people that that should be dictating how those policies are are you know forged and and applied. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know, we could talk about that for fucking two hours, and mm-hmm. you know, we'll, we'll come back to it a number of times. But going back to some of these units that, uh, that or the, the unit that you were a part of that, that's doing this kind of counter-narc stuff, I th- this made me think of a couple of kind of pop culture things, but I'm going to read an excerpt real quick about... Uh, you know some of the guys. You know the the mules and the people that are that are exacting some of these uh, load hauls and and infiltrations through the border. Like how dangerous of a gig it is. And you say a jail sentence turned into a death sentence. The smuggling organizations did not forgive informants and did not forgive cold feet and losing a load. I saw this from the front of the show. That made me think of a couple of things. Which was uh, you talk about being burned alive or melted into barrels those types of tactics for people that lose loads or that snitch or whatever. But it made me think of kind of the breaking bad and, and the pop culture that, that our country seems to be somewhat con, uh, consumed by as it relates to, to narco across the board. And I'm curious how, how accurate are a lot of these pop culture shows? Do you watch them? Do you think that that has a, a negative impact on, on our society in terms of that kind of stuff? What, what's your take on that? I think the best show I've ever seen about the drug world is The Wire. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen The Wire. You have to watch it. It's I really haven't. good. It comes, you know, back, this is back when I used to use pagers and everything. And then, they, but then they go into the whole loads and all that. Yeah. But pop culture type shows, they're, they're not realistic. But do you think that they romanticize it to a they point do. where it's da- actually dangerous? They absolutely dangerous? do. Yeah. Are there they're, any examples? Well, the pop culture is people are rooting for the bad guy half the time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this guy's making meth loads. And I mean, everybody I know has lost someone to it. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's very, it's just, I, I can't stand it. Yeah. So you're not, you're not a Breaking Bad fan? <laughs> I haven't watched it yet. Yeah. Oh, no shit. No. I mean, to me, I, I don't watch a whole lot. Yeah, but it's, it's but, entertainment. Yeah. Does it make me want to go out and, you know, do anything? Nah. Yeah. I, I can see where, you know, for the, for the naive, exactly like you said, is that you're sitting here rooting for Walter White and, and, uh, you know, essentially thinking like, fuck, maybe I ought to start selling drugs. Like that's mm-hmm. not a bad gig or it's sexy or, you know, I'm bored or whatever, but all right, so going back to some of these units, um, another thing that I, I thought, you know, again, made sense, but I didn't realize that they were doing, and again, maybe that's some of my naivete 
as it relates to the way you guys operate, but was the phone number input database to link cases together, which I thought was brilliant. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, what you do is you do photos. And this is all open source stuff. Yeah. You just take a take someone's phone number, you type it in. If it links to another case, then it becomes like a spider web. Yeah. And that's where you can kind of focus your resources. That's where you can kind of try to go out and yeah. you know, recruit some people. Yeah. And and I mean that that single kind of control factor that you guys would would use linked a lot of things and connected a lot yeah. of dots, right? Um mm-hmm. one thing for for both me and the listener, I'd I would love if you can kind of just briefly explain the 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 entire trafficking process as it relates to narcotics and stuff sure. we're talking about like from the supply chain to the just the you know from start to finish kind of what that looks like so that people have an understanding yeah. of what they're dealing with well you're always going to have the supply right this is going to be like any other business but in order to get from point a to point b you need to hire someone to drive that load you're not going to put your you know anybody that's worth anything in your organization is going to drive a load so a lot of times down in tijuana or one of these border towns or another area they recruit people to drive these loads across. The load comes across the border, goes to an initial spot where they offload it, and then from that point it gets distributed out uh, to different areas of the country, and that's where it gets broken down. Now, a lot of times when we pop these people at the border, they'll have like a they'll have a phone number because everybody is you don't know where you're going. Yeah, you always have a, a contact number, so then we take that contact number, run it, see if it links anything else. A lot of times it might not, et cetera. And then you, you kind of go from there to see, hey, you know what? Is this guy worth trying to flip? Uh, flip as in turn uh, source or informant or anything? Or should we kind of give this a little more merit, follow it out? Or do we just kind of take the guy into custody? And so from, from that, I mean, can you talk about some of the different methods that uh, are used to actually get it across the border? Because that's one of the things I think that fascinates me and a lot of people is, you know, both on, a, on kind of a broad spectrum like foot, Vehicle, every way, you know. every way. Can you talk and, about and it? It all depends. Like we had a guy with a tar heroin coming across, secreted in suitcases, walking through pedestrian. And the only reason we got that because he got hinked up. And you could always, you could always tell like nervousness and everything else like that when you're interrogating someone like mm-hmm. that. The inspector said, "Hey, you know what? Um, we're going to take a look at your suitcase. Looked at it. Guy ends up working for us. Well, he's going to deliver it, not really working for us. Goes out to deliver it." And uh, someone just comes pick it up right right outside the border. So you have suitcases, stuff like that, backpacks. And then you have tractor trailers with hidden compartments. You have every car you can imagine, like, with hidden compartments. Trunks underneath it, gas tanks mostly, battery compartments, you know, where they, they put a, a lawnmower battery in one half, and then the other half is, like, uh, crystal. Yeah. Any way they could bring it across, they're bringing it across. Then you got the backpackers which is mostly like the weed and stuff. Yeah. You're not going to really throw a bunch of powder on a backpacker. Why, why is that? Is it, is it because the, they're willing to lose X amount? Yeah, you could lose weed all day long. I mean, like when we used to work uh, a common, when I worked, um, some of our, our groups would get, um, you know, a 5,000-pound weed load is like nothing. Yeah. And 20,000 pounds, it's like, well, you know. Yeah. Well, so are, are there, because I mean, I've seen, I mean, everybody's seen like at this point, like you see shit on Facebook, like look at this load mm-hmm. and it's it's like balls of fucking cocaine that are spray painted like watermelons. And yeah. Like are, are, any way you could imagine, yeah. man, speakers, anything they could put in. And a lot of, they were putting them in uh, 
and pepper loads, thinking a canine is going to yeah. be able to hit them. Yeah. But then they don't think like you have X-ray machines. Yeah. And, well, the thing I mean, from a from a canine standpoint, like you can't you can't mask the smell of it. No. Nah. Like there's there's no way to cover it up. You know that's. But what I, I do have a funny story about a canine. Yeah. What's that? We. <laughs> So we go into a, we go into a garage, right? This car was in there. Um, we had, we knew it was a meth load. Uh, the meth was in the. It was like one of those battery compartments, and the dog goes in there. But I guess there wasn't the vapor from the weed. The four hundred pounds of weed that was in a corner mm-hmm. wasn't secreting enough. The dog hit right on a truck and ran right by the weed. Oh, it was yeah. so focused on it. it. Was like I was like. Hey guys, uh, there's like stacks of weed over here. Yeah, but it was weird. It wasn't. Well, yeah. So one thing with dogs is like that, the vapor. Uh, I don't know how that works. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it, what it boils down to is just basic uh, air movement. Yeah. Right. Is that you know we use our eyes to kind of figure things out, mm-hmm. and they a good dog doesn't. It uses its nose, and so depending upon a number of factors inside of that uh, you know warehouse or wherever is is that. You know, let's say for example, if there's a, it's windy and a, and a garage door has has a shitty seam on one mm-hmm. side, something as simple as well, that. Well, the truck, and now you bring it up, I think what the thing was, the truck moved in, mm-hmm. so all the meth probably was aerating. Yeah, I mean, and then the, that weed was just over there on a the yeah, scale. I mean, as a dog handler, like number one is is the number one thing you look at is is the environment and the wind. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's inside and there, and there's wind, like you look at door seams, you look at open windows. You know, I mean, in a warehouse. If there's one open window and, and a shitty door seam on one side mm-hmm. of a garage and wind blowing northeast, you know, like th- those are all things you look at because that's absolutely going to impact, mm-hmm. you know, where where that odor is moving and, and where the dog ultimately is going to hit. Because exactly, he may hit on somewhere where there's nothing present, but because of, of all of these factors that that's where everything is pooling, you know. And but, I can tell you, everybody loves canine. Man. Oh, yeah. You, when, especially in a dope world. It's yeah, like, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, crazy border crossings, is there one or two, like, holy shit, I can't believe it was disguised like this that uh, that come to mind that you haven't shared? I don't know about the whole disguise thing. I mean, because after a while, it just gets me, it's going to be gas tank, it's going to be in the dashboard, and then with the tractor trailers, it's always under the floorboards. Yeah. And that kind of really surprised me, is like how much actual weed they can get in these floorboards. Yeah. And it just, you can kind of tell. Unless you have a trained eye. Yeah. I mean, I've seen some where uh, it's like inside of the tire. Like yeah. Like inside mm-hmm. the tube of the tire, which... And a lot of times that's when they'll jack up the uh, the shocks and everything, so you're not really yeah. putting as much pressure on those yeah. tires. Yeah. Um, one thing we haven't talked about in terms of getting it across is, is from air, an air standpoint. Uh, how big of a role do you, do you uh, suspect that plays, uh, whether it's private planes? Because, I mean, to me, like... I haven't flown a, a, on private much, but the times I did, like, I was like, Jesus Christ, you could bring whatever the fuck you want across here. Like, yeah. didn't even check. Um, I'm sure. And that's the thing. is like, God, the whole process is completely broken. Because when was the last time you heard about a train load? Mm-hmm. Can you imagine how much train is going back and forth? Um, you always hear about the Coast Guard popping a, a vessel here and there. Yeah. But then you have, I, I worked a load... Um, some random story. When I was in uh, ICE, I was a fugitive operations supervisor back in uh, 2012. I did a leadership duty to Camden, New Jersey, with their Hyde with their Hyde team. Mm-hmm. And one of my HSI buddies, we got we were getting loads off of the uh, the ports there, yeah, coming from Puerto Rico and everywhere else. So, as far as Airdo, uh, you know, it, it, I guarantee it's coming in. And even like Com Air, like are there people that I don't think about Com Air as much. Yeah, but, but think for- about where if you could secrete it, all this into the and I always say this, there's like, you know, you're getting a 2006 uh, 
what do you call it, Honda Civic or something like that with 40 pounds of weed, what's coming in behind it? Yeah. Because all your resources are focused on that one car. And, and that is a, a common tactic, right? Yeah, the shotgun. Put, put a small load mm-hmm. and then a big load behind it. Yeah, or a shotgun on the border with a few yeah. loads of yeah. weed or even a little powder. Yeah. Yeah, it's fucking nuts. I mean, it's it's a, a daunting task. Um, I don't know how you control that, just completely shutting it down. But um, if you could, one of the things that I that I really liked uh, reading was kind of the intricacies of uh, of the Galena case and the, the kind of the interagency cooperation and, and how spiderwebbed, uh, which funny you used that term a minute ago, <laughs> that, that it is between agencies and whatever. Can you can you speak to that a little bit so, to give people an idea of how that works? Yeah, you know. I had a really big case. It was awesome. And I changed all the names of the suspects and people in my book. So Gayina was just a name for another dude. And you find out, like, when I, when I ran these phone numbers and everything and how they linked to all these other cases. And what I would do is I would just go out and I tried to find, it's the same thing if you're ever recruiting for anything. You want to find the right people for the right job. So I was able to get an FBI guy, IRS, state and local. I actually had an Army CID guy because one of my targets was an a, a active duty recruiter. Yeah, for the National Guard, he oh. was on active duty order. So I, oh. I recruited everybody I could. To, you know, you have to pick the right people. Yeah. Goddamn varsity squad, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and one of the things talking about uh, tunnels, uh, and, and again, like I knew that tunnels existed, and I've seen. I think everybody at this point has seen. You know, again, whether it's through social media or specials on Netflix or whatever, of some pretty wild shit. But can you talk? Uh, you know, about some of the tunnels and describe oh, I love the, tunnels, the intricacies. Man. I'm like, <laughs> and you can't. And that's the thing. I always try to like. I like walls because, in one way, when you're in, I like walls in urban areas big time, like real walls. You know, yeah. ones that go thirty, forty meters into the ground or whatever, yeah. in order to anchor them. Because then it makes these ad hoc tunnels. Some tunnels are only like you know four or five feet under the ground, just enough to get you up and under. But then you have these intricate tunnels, and if we put the walls deep enough into the ground, they're going to actually have to dig deeper. Yeah. There's be more resources for them. There was tunnels in a border right exactly where I worked as a border patrol agent sitting on my truck in that same area coming in underneath me oh, to a warehouse. What? Uh, how, how deep? I mean, what's the deepest Those, one that you saw? The, that came in after I left for the war, but I actually crawled through a tunnel over by the... Uh, yeah. It was awesome, man. Yeah. I, uh, in the story, I uh, <laughs> it's, it's not even a story. It's just so funny. The, uh, we've, a tunnel collapsed, and then my supervisor, one of the supervisors, was like, hey, can someone climb over to the other side? We're working with the federalities at the time. I was like, I'll cruise over there. So I climb in this tunnel. I get to the other side, and there's all these federalities with MP5s around me, and I'm just like, holy guys. Yeah, yeah. And I wish I got to find those pictures somewhere. But I have a picture. I gave my camera to one of the uh, the Mexican federalities, and I take a bunch of pictures of me and yeah. these guys. Man. It was so fun. It was awesome. <laughs> Well, and so speaking of the federalities, like, uh, is there a kind of an arm's length level of trust with those guys? There because, are. I mean, because a lot of them are corrupt, right? You know, it's it's corruption everywhere. Yeah. But, you know, there are good people. And I, I didn't bring this up in the book, but when I was in the Border Patrol, I was a part of my shift's Mexican liaison group. So I was actually in charge of liaisoning with the Mexicans uh, down south that were Grupo Beta at the time. They were like the Mexican immigration type people. And they would work border crimes. And I remember going down to Mexico. I mean, it was crazy. It was something like out of a movie. Where they shuffled us. They're like, hey, we're going to go do some liaison. We're going to go meet these guys for the first time. And I'm the only gringa. Back then, I could speak really good Spanish. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're like, just bring a driver's license with you. I'm going to send you across the border with uh, four or five of the other Border Patrol guys and go meet with Grupo Beta. 
go across, they shuffle the group of beta guys, shuffle us through a building into a minivan, and boom, we're off to the middle of Tijuana. Yeah. We sit there, we talk to these guys, and we hear their stories, and you're like, man, these guys are going through some, you know, some shit. As we're coming back, it's getting to be the nighttime shift for the group of beta guys. And I'm seeing them, you know, some of these men and women tucking like a, the old 1911 World War II series yeah. into their waistband and putting on the Vietnam era like uh, the Marines used to wear. The flag vest. The flag vest, yeah. yeah. And they're going out there to work banditos, man. Yeah. And I'm like, how can that dude really be corrupt? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure there were corrupt ones because, yeah. you know, you can always kind of tell. But sure. There's there's good people on both sides. Yeah. In, in terms of the of the tunnels, I guess, I, I'm curious. I mean, are some of them, like, even concrete reinforced? Oh, yeah, definitely. They're, they are absolutely incredible. Like, train systems, everything. Oh, shit. Yeah, what? lighting, train, ventilation. Is there is there uh, deepest and longest in terms of, of the tunnel length? Um, you know, is, is there, like... Well, they've got to be hundreds of meters. I mean, have going, you seen some that are, like, 40 feet deep? I haven't personally, but I've seen my, my buddies have told me all yeah. about that. The, the, oh, yeah, it's definitely way more than 40 feet deep. No shit. Yeah. And and hundreds of meters long, and I mean, what could I mean? Is there is there an ability to put uh, a rough ballpark percentage on you know how much of the the overall drug population? Hundreds of tons, easily. Yeah, Remember, that's a this is probably a twenty four seven system. Would you say half half of the drugs that come into this country? Or? No, because I think a lot's going to be coming in through the ports of entry. Yeah, how do you fix the ports? And I'm not talking about the ports of entry at the border. I'm talking about like a lot of cargo. Yeah. I mean, we got Long Beach. We've got every anywhere there's, there's cargo yeah. ships coming in. Is there is there a, a mode or method uh, from your perspective that can can fix that? Technology, no, it could help it, but I, I'm always going to bring up human. Human yeah. is everything, and humans in military and uh, police with everything. You're not going to solve any crime or anything without actually. Well, human could be you on the ground. It could be you know working with the border patrol agent who sees different sign recruiting sources but until we hire enough people or just have enough focused on it yeah the i mean i guess the the thing that i think about even even with the you know with i mean let's say you hire a million fucking people like the ports of entry when it comes to big ships that have you know, hundreds of containers you on can't. them. Like, Matt, you know, to me, I don't know how you fucking deal with that other than, say, like, you just don't import shit. I mean, no, you can't. And that's where, and my, my thing is, the only way you're going to disrupt these organizations and dismantle them is by the inside. Yeah, like dismantling their actual network through, yes. through human and, mm-hmm. and shit like that. That makes sense. Um, and we're doing it. I mean, there's yeah. organizations going down, but, you yeah. know... Yeah, who's the shot callers out there? Yeah, well, and that's one of the things. Um, if if you could, maybe I'm confused on on uh, the organization of it. But I, I was again astounded to realize that uh, factions or elements, at least related to, to CBP, had these narc units that were doing you know surveillance and tailing mm-hmm. loads like all the way up to fucking San Francisco. Oh, easily. Yeah, we. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's and. It, Chicago, New York, you follow them everywhere. Yeah. I guarantee you right now there's, you know, everywhere you go, 35 straight up to Minnesota. Yeah. Every major thoroughfare. Because a lot, so we were talking about the dope how it comes in. So let's say you have a bigger load. You have one of these tractor trailer loads. A lot of times they'll go to like an LA and then they'll get offloaded there. Um, we followed loads out to Phoenix all the time, the warehouses. They get offloaded there and then they get broken down into smaller packages. And then they move out. And we're not talking smaller packages. We're talking like, so you have 20, let's say it's weed. You have 20,000 pounds of weed. You break that down to like 100-pound loads that you could put into cars. Yeah. 
We're, I mean, so is that a fucking semi trailer with? I mean, how? how yeah, how are yeah. You I mean, like a, a semi trailer is twenty thousand pounds. Yeah, and U hauls. Yeah, you know, did you see that movie The Mule with Clint Eastwood? Yeah. You know, that's a very common tactic is you senior citizens, but they're not putting them in a, a, a pickup truck. They're putting them in RVs. Yeah. Snowbirds, back and forth, back and forth. You're never yeah. going to stop a 65-year-old yeah. couple with a fucking Vietnam vet mm-hmm. hat on. Yeah. Yep. Jesus. Um, so you, you did this, and, and you, there's a number of really neat stories during your time there. I don't want to spoil all of them for, for the <laughs> listeners so that uh, there's still some, some I got a million more some stories, good, good man. stuff from the book, but... So you do that for for a number of years, and then you you actually get activated for army duty reserve and thrown back into yeah, that into was that random. mix, and you go to Iraq in the in the '06 time frame. Can you give us a quick quick rundown on that? Sure, I was uh, I was at a retirement party, and I was probably drinking rum. <laughs> I can't Again, still. Uh, I think my wife's in the FBI academy. Yeah, she was. She was in the, just graduated the FBI academy, and I get back. Uh, I open up my mailbox and it looks like a money gram. Yeah. But it looks like like a junk mail. Yeah. Publisher's clearinghouse. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I won something. <laughs> and that at the time I was a first lieutenant. I wasn't a captain yet. And I was like, oh, what the could have first time? I'm like, I haven't been in uniform in years, man. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm an infantry officer. They're gonna want someone else more than me. I'm like, I'm just, you know, ground pounder. Yeah. And I uh I open it up and it's like you've been in- involuntarily recalled for Operation Iraqi Freedom. Yeah. And I was like, man, at the time, I have this huge, what they call an organized crime drug enforcement task force case, 200 targets, rocking and rolling, we're getting seizures. And I'm like, really? Yeah, why would they pull you for that? (laughs) Yeah, so then I uh, get sent to Benning for a few months. They had no idea what to do with me. And then they put me in charge of a bunch of IRR guys, a bunch of infantry dudes, and sent me down to Mississippi in summer of 2005 just in time for Hurricane Katrina. <laughs> so I'm in Hurricane Katrina, literally in it. Yeah. And then I went to Kuwait for a couple of months, and I got detached, and I went up to uh, Iraq, and I worked for uh, CJ Soda as their ATFP guy for about 10 months. Yeah. What, what was the overall experience like that? It seemed, it seemed like a waste of time when you were doing no, it. No, because, you know, I liked working the ATFP thing because I actually got to see, like, how the soft units and everything were working. Yeah. Did, and, that, uh, did that influence... Uh, from a tactics or strategic organization standpoint, uh, giving you any um, things to use as a playbook? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So when I came back, I um, that's where I was like, you know what, I need to finish up, I get some more education. So I got the master's. And then later on, I got this doctorate in strategic security. But I use a lot of that experience of watching like this. At the time, I had uh, Colonel Kenneth Tovo. He later on became like a big SF dude. But just watching these guys and how they integrate and how they move their pieces of the puzzle around. And just being around, like, you know, real professionals, it yeah. felt, you know, it was good. Well, and there, there's a ton of similarities between, in terms of the, the tactics, protocols, and the methodology used to dismantle a terrorism network as, yeah. as a car. I mean, it's the exact same shit. It is, exactly. You know, so it, it is neat to see some cross-pollination uh, in, in terms of... And that's what Nick and I were talking about, uh, Nick Irving, writing a book about the, you know... Look at the Zetas, look at the cartels, and look at the tactics of AQI and everything. And you know, just as well as I do, like AQI and all the guys, it's not all about, not always about fundamentals. It's yeah. about money. Sure. Well, I mean, m- money, money is the only way they can apply the yeah. fundamentals, you know. So, it, yeah, I mean, ultimately, the the way that you break them down and dismantle them and, and neutralize them is, is pretty much the exact fucking same. Um, all right, so you have good experience there. You come home, you resign your commission to... You know, to basically get back in the fold, uh, and then you leave ICE and head to DC. 
Can you uh, just kind of briefly describe the differences between CBP, ICE, and just the different factions so that people have an understanding, A, that there is a difference, and B, what, what it is? Sure. Well, I, I get back from the war, work for DOD for a bit, and then I, um, I become an ICE officer. Mm-hmm. Then I became an ICE fugitive operations supervisor, and then I go to D.C. Uh, so here's how ICE works. ICE, there's two different branches of ICE, completely different from CVP. So if you look at an org chart, uh, the top would be DHS. One branch would go over to Customs and Border Protection, which is your Border Patrol, your uniform guys at the airport. Another branch would go over to ICE. ICE then breaks down into two distinct areas, enforcement and removal operations, which is all about removing aliens, apprehending criminal aliens, et cetera. The other one is Homeland Security Investigations, which is my basic former organization, which was U.S. Customs. They're the ones who do the trade, arms smuggling, trade security control type stuff, narcotics, uh, money laundering, child exploitation, anything, anything, you know what, an easier way to say it is anything with an international nexus. Mm -hmm. So a nexus to the border is where... HSI comes in. Yeah. So I went to work for ERO and I get to DC and that's kind of how it all started (laughs) where Uh, I ended up sitting in front of you today. Yeah. Well, before we get into kind of the nuts and bolts of that, I, I, you know, one of the things that drives me fucking crazy is seeing mostly on the political spectrum, which spills over into everyday Americans that tend to lean left is the demonization of ice and comparing them to KKK or Nazi SS groups. And to me, like, I mean, that, that's not just wrong. It's fucking dangerous. I mean, it it, is, it's criminal, you know, Um, 40% of ice missions, immigration. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, to me to like, to, to compare that to a group of people who were gas chambering millions of people, like it's, it's, it's fucking, it's irresponsible. That's one of the reasons I kind of started doing all this stuff too, is I'm like, I just need to voice my, like what I know of the people on the ground, you know? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I mean, to me, like, I have my opinions, which ultimately are just that, you know, to me, if you if you come here illegally, like, it's fucking illegal. <laughs> you know, I don't know why that's that's hard to wrap your mind around, like, but, uh, I mean, that's, we could we could spend days talking about that. But, uh, all right, so you head to D.C., and we'll get into that in a second, but uh, during this time, your brother, who I, I found a, a tragic irony in, the reason he was in jail and, and his life was where it was and, and when it was cut short. Oh, you're killing me with the brother thing. Yeah. I knew you were going to bring that up. Yeah. I, I get goosebumps thinking about it because I'm yeah. like, just like, yeah, frustrating. Um, you know, but it's to me, it, it what it does more than anything is it, is it highlights, uh, you know, the personal factor behind it is that it's it's woven into the fabric of this country everywhere, you know, um, and the fact that uh, that you know your brother was. I mean, if, if you could, if you if you if you're willing yeah, I, to, I, I, yeah. And I don't think I don't know if I wrote the whole thing into the book because I, at the time, I was probably uh, you know just hanging out and trying to write this thing. Yeah. So Mike uh, grew up, and you know, he like I said before, he's a machine. Um, I was thinking maybe he was bipolar. I don't know, and he would start smoking weed in order to get to that where he needed something. You know, I don't know what he needed. Started smoking weed, and then he's boxing. He's in his mid-30s now, probably 33, 34, wants to get back into boxing, right? Starts taking ephedra. Remember they used to sell the -the over-the-counter ephedra, yeah. The white crosses. Yeah. Yeah. And then he started uh, doing cocaine. So the ephedra and cocaine killed his heart. So he had a heart attack, had to get a stent. Um, At this time, it's 
right, 2005, 2004. I move him out to San Diego. Um, he's a mess. He's an addict at the time. So I move him out to live with me. Uh, not actually live with me. I put him in a halfway house. I put him in rehab. Um, I was trying to get him straight. And at the same time, I'm working dope while my brother is struggling. Yeah. Well, I don't put this in a story, but my brother's friend, who I'll leave, he met in rehab, was a, uh, he was a uh, crystal. He was in crystal, into crystal. As far as uh, doing it or dealing doing it? Doing it. Yeah. And he was dealing it. So I saw an opportunity there. I'm like, you know what? I'm fucking pissed. So I flip his friend. <laughs> no shit. I know. And it, but it was the worst mistake because I kept that friend going. Yeah. And, and close Just to him. Just trying to close to my brother. The next thing you know, my brother gets hooked on a pipe. Yeah. And you know, anybody who knows addiction knows that, you know, cocaine's mentally addicting. I think I could have helped him with that. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. My brother ends up getting on the pipe. And I, I, you know, I was just so naive and dumb back then, thinking that, you know, I could actually do something, you know, for the greater good, which is, you know, complete bullshit. But um, then I get that letter in the mail. So I'm in charge of my brother. I always say in charge. I'm like, because I'm the only one in my family at the time taking care of. Everybody else was excommunicated. We had one of those families, you know. So I'm like... uh, I'm like, shit, man. I, uh, I'm going to war. I don't know where I'm going. At the time, I, was, I knew I was going to either go to Djibouti, uh, Kuwait, Iraq, or Afghanistan. And I'm like, bro, I, I, you know, my wife's away. She can't take care of me. And she did, a, she did a lot. She was taking him to his doctor's appointments and everything else because his heart's a mess. So then he, uh, I ended up giving him a hotel for a month, and then I, uh, I went off about, you know, 16 months into my tour, I get a, a random, my brother tracked me down in Iraq and sent me a letter. And I saw where his address from it was addressed from, from a jail in Pennsylvania. And he was getting himself straight. He was in jail for failure to pay child support. And, uh, he was, his letters was straight. I could always tell when he was up and down. So, uh, yeah, I'm always like, you know, what? I came back in, uh, November Oh, shit, man, you're killing me. This is like one of those, (laughs) one of those. uh, So um, here's a timeline. So my birthday's in January. My brother's in jail for a couple months since I've been back. And I kept blowing it off. I'm like, you know what? He's getting out in a few months. I'll go up there and see him one weekend. Um, He calls me on my birthday. He's like, happy birthday, Jay, blah, blah, blah. And I had some, you know, this is another one of those stories, man, where you're just like, I had carpet in my house, and I was getting hardwood floors. I wanted to put hardwood floors. So I had some guy there, and I'm like, hey, Mike, can, I, uh, can you give me a call next weekend? And uh, I'm just like, you know, I blew him off, you know. And he's in jail. I'm like, what am I thinking? You know, nowadays I would have just talked to him forever. Yeah. But he was, he was straight, man. You could tell in his voice. He was talking like you and me clear today. Next thing you know, the next weekend, I think it was the next weekend, I had a voicemail, came back from dinner with my wife, um, and it was a warden, and not the warden, it was a shift lieutenant. And he's like, call me when you get in. 
like real assholey, you know. So I call him up, and he goes like, "This lieutenant, such and such." I'm like, I'm thinking at the first time, I'm like, well, you know, Mike probably got in a fight, probably got stabbed. Yeah, he's cool, whatever. He probably beat the shit out of the dude because that's what he would do. Yeah, uh, yeah, because uh, you know, he he was always like that. You yeah. know, he never he always picked. He was like one of those like. Uh, I don't know. We'll talk about that later on. But anyway, so I call the warden up. He goes, your brother's dead. He's at the East Strasburg Hospital. And I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, your brother was uh, playing basketball, and he had a massive heart attack and died. We tried to revive him. didn't work. If you want to go get the body or go see the body, he's at the hospital. And that's basically it. I was like, oh, fuck. You know, uh, why, why is a guy with a heart condition playing basketball? And, you know, I just, I couldn't get over it. So I had to call my parents up. My brother's daughter is uh, six months pregnant. None of, nobody in my family actually talked at the time. Call my dad up. My dad breaks down, like completely breaks down. Um, ends up uh, almost having a heart attack. They bring him to the hospital. I called my other brother, Brian, who hasn't talked to my parents about a decade now. Tell him. So we all shuffle on up to the hospital. My brother's dead, literally three blocks, three, no, three rooms away from my dad. And uh, Did your dad know that at the time? No, that's why he broke down. Oh, I got Yeah. It. I mean, did your dad know that he was three doors down? No. Yeah. But then the, uh, the hospital told us, and then my mom goes, I need to know that he's really dead. You and your brother need to go and see. I need to know that his soul left his body. And I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I, I, you know. So I went in and I saw my brother dead on a slab. And they still had the uh, tube in his mouth. And I was like, holy shit, man. Yeah. I'm like, all this. <laughs> yeah. So at that point, I guess two things is that I know that there's a level of accountability that stems into the next part of, of the story that we're about to get into uh, that, that I think came out of that. But was there, uh, you know, remorse and a level of, of feeling responsible to a certain extent? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. To this day, I still, you know... I mean, to me, I, I can see how it would be hard not to. I mean, from my perspective, I, I've been in situations where I've felt similar feelings because of things that happened. But, you know, to me, I think it's important to to know that, you know, every everybody's a fucking grown adult that makes their own decisions. But um, when it's your own brother, I can see how that would be tough, you know. And the accountability piece that you felt uh, in terms of, um, it, it seemed like kind of the, the jail administration was not being a hundred percent straight with you. No, when I showed up, um, I go, they're like, come pick your brother's stuff up. You have three days. So I roll into the, uh, the, the warden is waiting for me. Uh, he's talking to his admin specialist or whatever, hands me a bag of my brother's stuff. He goes, here's your brother's stuff. I go, Hey, look, you know, I'm an LEO. Uh, my wife's an LEO. I'm like, what, what really happened here? And he goes, well, I, you're going to have to inquire somewhere else. Hands me a plastic bag with all my brother's stuff. And actually I had his Bible in there. Had, uh, and in jail, you get, um, commissary, yeah. which is basically food and stuff. They dumped it all in there. I just remember, I'm always going to remember this day. There was probably about a hundred cheetah, uh, Cheez-Its in there yeah. all over his stuff. Like just and loose? Loose. They literally dumped his comment. Like he was a, not a human being. Yeah. My brother was in there for child support. Turns out I found some letters that he wrote to his buddy. And because uh, when he gave me his bag, there was a letter in there. And he goes, look, I only owe three grand. He was going on work release. He was going to work. At, he got a job at a restaurant. He wrote me a letter about that. He was going to start working at night to pay off his child support. And I was like, cool. And he was going to get out in three months. 
And it only cost him three thousand dollars to get out of jail. But in his letter, he told his friend, he's like, "I'm not going to ask Jason. I've already asked him for too much." And I think to myself nowadays, I'm like, "Man, if he if he just told me, I would I would have came up with three grand, got him out, and just he would be alive." Yeah. I keep thinking to myself, you yeah. know, well, that's tough. I mean, you know, and again, I know, you know, you can hindsight's twenty twenty. You can always look back and. And blame yourself. I, 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 at least for me, and I, I think with most people, I don't find it uh, particularly productive to, you know, to, to be that way. But I, I know it's a lot easier said than done. I appreciate you sharing that. And, and moving on now, how this kind of that that accountability component that uh, that that you you know kind of really learned from that uh, situation and example goes into the next part of the story, which is now, um, you know, where a lot of this book really, I think stems from, which is the, the, the releasing of, you know, basically if, you know, the, the things that you find out in terms of all of these unaccompanied children that are coming across the border, uh, and how that's being handled. So I, I will let you, um, you know, kind of set that part of it up and, and explain to people what that is. Cause again, this is something I, I had no fucking idea that that's how it was being handled. So, uh, I go to headquarters. I'm there for a while. And actually the reason I went to headquarters, it was part of a leadership duty. Um, you get to go out there, temp- temporary duty, TDY, uh, thinking that, Hey, you know what? If I get to the head shed, if I get to DC, I can actually make a difference. You know, I use this experience to do something. And, uh, you know, at the time, I, you know, I wasn't one of those. I've never been one of those people where someone pats you on the back and says, you're going to go all the way. I just want to go out there and do something, yeah. do something different, make a change. So I get out there. Eventually, in 2015, I get assigned to this human smuggling cell, which is part of the White House Security Council. They put together a cell of Customs and Border Protection people, ICE, Homeland Security Investigations, Enforcement Removal Operations, which was me, uh, Border Patrol, and everybody. And there was probably about 13 of us, including intel analysts. And our goal was to curb the migration flow uh, to disrupt and dismantle, basically what I've always been saying, disrupt and dismantle these smuggling organizations that were bringing unaccompanied alien children and others up. And these others were the special interest alien countries or specially designated countries. Other people from like, other than Mexicans, i.e. your Syrians and everybody else are coming up. We're supposed to stop the flow. Well, I found out that a lot of these unaccompanied alien children well, I'll explain it to the audience, uh, the listeners, I should say. Yeah. Is um, So a child will come to the border. And I always like to say that it's a child because not all of them are the first thing people are like, oh, they're MS-13. Yeah. They're all MS-13, but they're not. A lot of them are tender age. You know, We're talking babies on up to like 10 years old. They come to the border in these groups. Either Border Patrol gets them or... Uh, the uniform people at the uh, the ports of entry get them. Then they go from there to ICE. ICE houses them and then hands them over to Health and Human Services, who then hands them over to a contracted facility. Now, when they get to the contracted facility, they get released to a sponsor. Now, that sponsor doesn't have to be a familiar relation. It's someone who comes in and claims a child. So in July of 2015, I, well, actually it was August 4th. I can remember that day forever. It was August 3rd or 4th. So it's August 4th, yeah, because that's the day. I get this spreadsheet. It's, um, it has a list of 29,000 sponsors. And then it shows columns of red, which 3,400 of those are criminals. So that means 29,000 kids were released out of 84,000, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, and they only this spreadsheet was only 
it was like a sampling that ICE and ICE Intel ran to determine whether or not these sponsors were criminals. Turned out 3,600 of those sponsors were criminals, including sex offenders. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, are we going to go do an op and get the kids, take them back into custody, at least the ones that are in criminals? And hey, if we can't get all the criminals, uh, let's get at least the egregious ones. And uh, there was no, nothing. Yeah. My chain of command was like, well, you know, we're working on it. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's no good. And then I looked in a database. I had an unaccompanied alien children database, and it had pictures of the kids. And I looked at those kids, and I'm like, at the time, I had a six- and eight-year-old at home. And I said, I'm looking at, like, these are just little kids, man. These are like babies and stuff. And, and so can you, for, for those of you that may be a little confused listening, I mean, that this group of of uh you know, 3,400 or whatever it is, Yeah, they're being caught and then released into the public. Uh, yeah, these are the kids. So these, this 3,600, so let's say there's 29,000 kids. Mm-hmm. 29,000 of them were released as sponsors. And there's a 20, that means there's 29,000 sponsors, give or take, because, you know, some take two kids. 3,400 or 3,600 of those sponsors had a criminal hit. And those criminal hits could be anything up to like you know it could be DUIs, reentries. But the, but these sponsors are are people that came here illegally, correct? A lot of them were because that's the other part of the problem is the sponsors weren't getting vetted. Mm-hmm. They weren't having basic criminal history checks done. They were not getting. They were mandated to be fingerprinted, but they weren't fingerprinted because. It, I guess where where are they getting this list of sponsors from? So when they come in to pick up the kid, they give here's my name, here's my DOB. So they're uh, this is the address. Yeah, they they volunteer the information, but then that contractor facility is not vetting that. That's fucking unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, so they're just handing these fucking kids. Yeah, over. like there was nothing. Yeah, because you know you have to move bodies. I, there were roughly 60, 80, 60 to eighty thousand kids, and I think it's still around the same numbers coming across the border. Border, and that started around twenty thirteen is when it started picking up. Yeah. Do you think that, uh, I guess from kind of the 30,000 foot view, uh, leading into the, how do you fix this? But do you, do you think that, you know, what, what is our responsibility, uh, again, big picture wise for all of these kids that are coming across? Like, what do you think should be done with them? Cause to me, and I'm not trying to, to put words in your mouth, but to me, it doesn't seem like it's a good idea to just send them with people irrespective no. of I mean to me like I don't care if you're fucking vetted to the teeth like it, no. that just doesn't seem like a good even idea if, even if you're vetted and you know well just as well as I do that and when it comes to terrorists are like well you know we, not the side trip but think about when anybody coming across a border from Syria yeah if they've never been encountered by intel law enforcement or anybody else how do you know they're not a terrorist yeah so if these sponsors have never been encountered arrested or any other means and they're saying well they're part of my family how do you tell if they're a criminal or not yeah so i mean in looking at it if if i'm trying to get people in this country illegally especially ones that want to do harm like that's how i'm going to do it you yeah. know i mean so there's so many fucking things wrong with that there's, <laughs> I mean, we could literally talk six days in a row yeah. about just the things coming across that border oh, but yeah. with the kids i wanted at least the minimal was to have fingerprints taken on the sponsors and criminal yeah. histories. Yeah. Uh, that wasn't happening. And so you, you write a memo, basically, to the, to the head shed. Well, I go to the Office of Special Counsel. You see, I wasn't going to... I I never... I believe in process, uh, chain of command. I tried through my chain of command. Didn't work. So what I did was I said, you know what? If I'm going to do it, i got to do it the right way. I'm not a snowed, and I'm not one of these other people who are going to leak to the media. So I went to the Office of Special Counsel. I wrote him a letter, 
and I said, hey, uh, I actually emailed them. The information, the spreadsheet, and everything, something needs to be done about this. And then it started. I became a whistleblower. And the main thing was, you know, you bring back to, I know you mentioned it before about my brother dying in that jail thing, and that's kind of the thing that I'm like, I, I need to make decisions when I have them. Because like, if I could go back to that warden, you know, later on, you know, I, I Googled that area because I, I just had to block out him dying. But later on, I found out that whole jail system was all messed up and all. I could have done something back then. Yeah. So it's safe to say that that was a catalyst. That Definitely, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, all right, so you write a letter to uh, the head shed, and I, this is another excerpt I have pulled because I found it being pretty relevant. And this is kind of long, but bear with me. Um, the spreadsheet was dated July 2015. And the email stated they planned on an operation to target the criminal aliens. Of the 29,000 UAC sponsors identified in the spreadsheet, 3669 were convicted of crimes. The crimes ranged from reentry after deportation to DUI to assault to homicide to sex crimes. I was alarmed that we knew of this information and did not plan to get the innocent children out of the hands of the criminals. My other main concern was all of these children being released to men outside their families that could merely be sex traffickers. So you put this in, in essentially, you synopsize that into a memo to your head mm-hmm. shed, and they, one of the notes I have written down is they essentially sat on their fucking hands, did nothing, and then ultimately view well, you I, as... Well, I did that verbally. I said, you know what, this is bullshit. I mean, yeah. seriously. But but at that point, they basically, not only do they not do nothing, but now they look at you like this fucking guy's a problem, and they cancel your detail. Well, that's a little bit interesting how that happened. So the main, when I blew the whistle to OSC... OSC gets a hold of Health and Human Services, who have the Office of uh, Refugee Resettlement, RORR. Now, I'm going back and forth with HHS for months saying, look, this is your data you gave to us. Because they kept trying to refute the data. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this is your data that you gave to ICE. Yeah. So essentially, I said, finally, after three and a half months of nothing happening, I go to uh, my OSC contact, the lawyer over there, and I said, look, I'll just talk to him. But when I did talk to them, I talked to him on a Thursday, and I mentioned some specific instances of who I am. Not It was supposed to be anonymous, but and I have a feeling the reason they actually wanted to talk to me was to identify who I was. Because in there I said, I know this data is correct because I know, how, I know data. I'm a certified fraud examiner, and dumb me, I'm the only one on the cell. And I... <laughs> You know, this is hindsight. I'm like one of those things where I'm like, "Wow, Jay, you're really, you're really smart, special agent." At the time, I, was I wonder how they smart. found me. Yeah, the yeah. other was I'm like, I work with, <laughs> I work with a, a, a human smuggling cell. And yeah. Think about it. There's like what 13, 14 people. Yeah. The next business day, I showed up. My uh, they terminated my detail. Yeah. Can you explain what that means? That means they called me up, uh, my my headquarters supervisor. And it says, your, your details terminated. And I was like, what? I'm like, you know, I have, I've had, at that time, I had a million different things going. I was trying to deal with this. I didn't put that in a book, but trying to marry up our forensics lab with the passports coming across the board, the Syrian issue, all this other stuff. I'm like, why would my detail be terminated? Yeah. So then I got terminated and I got sent back to headquarters. What I, I found interesting, too, is that it was actually through the Freedom of Information Act that you realized that they're digging up. Oh, yeah, they came this, up. I said, you know what? I'm going to take a look and see just from a six-month period whether or not our internal affairs is looking at me. came up with 806 pages of my background yeah. going all the way back to my handwritten 
notes of when I joined the army in 1993, my polygraph results from, uh, agencies I applied to from the FBI, they had everything. Yeah. They learned shit about you that you didn't know. About I didn't even know. Yeah. I'm like, I keep it for my next background investigations <laughs> if I ever need one, right? Throw that in the fucking scrapbook. In terms of, of that particular position, you officially lose your job in, in February of 16. Is that correct? Uh, well, February 16, I went to a different agency. Or, but that, that's when... Yeah, that's when I had to get out. I mean, I, my detail was terminated October uh, 2nd, I believe, 2015. And after that, as, uh, there was a target on my yeah. back. And from from the memo that you um, sent to the head shed and, and you know, once leaving there, to your knowledge, has anything been done since then? To You know, actually in October, once, I, once they terminated my detail that day, or around that day, I got a hold of Senator Charles Grassley's office. Yeah. And they took it, man. They Who's from Iowa, by the way. He's awesome, man. Yeah. He's absolutely awesome. And he, uh, I never actually met him, but his staff took it. Um, since then, 2017, they're fingerprinting. That's why they started doing DNA. They took all my memos. They, they started, um, I actually blew the whistle on some Syrian stuff that they went, they ran with that. Yeah, they really, they took it and they went with it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I have, uh, you know, the next kind of, jotted down note i have is that you you used that experience to cross over into i guess you could call it anti-terrorism or at least the human trafficking component of terrorism uh or from um you know heavy terrorist laden regions can you uh kind of explain the again one of the things i found fascinating was the kind of the syria isis uh trafficking routes and process that they're that they were using that you you know helped to kind of identify and, and address uh, during that time well i you know c- coming from being a special agent and you know i worked some stuff with dod a little bit when i got back from the war nothing spooky nothing crazy but i learned a lot about how things work so uh, and that's not really ice let's say there's people who are other than mexican who are coming from these areas yeah so what they do is they get a passport they fly out of a um a dubai they um let's say it's a syrian Syrian gets a passport, legitimate passport, issued to them with a visa. They fly into Brazil. Uh, in Brazil, they link up with the smuggling network there. Now, this is they're paying the smuggling networks ahead of time. And figure it costs 20 grand a pop to get you from point A to point B to point C, which point C being the United States. So they're going from a Dubai to Brazil. From there, they get a different smuggler on the ground who's going to bring them to the border of Mexico. Uh, in Mexico, they get a transit visa. So they're coming up the same smuggling corridors as the aliens, or the regular migration patterns. In Mexico, they get a 10-day transit visa from the Mexican authority to make it up to the border. And at the border, they present themselves for inspection saying, hey, I'm here to claim asylum. They get interviewed. And in those interviews, I noticed that it's the same scenario. My mom, my dad, my brother sold a car in order to pay for me to get a smuggling. Mm-hmm. The, to pay for the smuggler to get me here. I'm a non-criminal, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know what? We don't have enough human at the border to um, interview or interrogate these people. And what we need to do is we need to have, you know, we need to get that big white elephant in the room, the uh, FBI, and everybody else to work together. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when I, I told Grassley. Grassley wanted to know about it, his office. How was this working with the Syrians? Because at the time, the, it was the big Syrian um, influx was coming, I think, 2016. Yeah. And that's why I said, here's what you need to do. And this is open. This is actually a letter. And if you Google it, you could probably find it. And in there, they have my 20 steps of what we need to do. We need to have, uh, like, 
we needed to set up human sections down at the border where we could actually interview and interrogate these people. We need to make sure that these passports are true and correct. And there's a whole bunch of different other areas I kind of, yeah. you know, just a basic, and I'm just a basic, you know, just basic common sense. Yeah. The uh, the thing that I, again, I, I just was like, holy shit, I didn't realize the magnitude in terms of, of the monetary component of human trafficking, that it's it's a multi-billion dollar a year yeah. industry. Like, I, I didn't realize. Well, just think, and it's, think about just a regular body. Yeah. A body coming across is $5,000. And then you think about how many thousands of bodies are coming across. You just multiply yeah. it. It's really that much. Yeah, there's a fuck ton of money yeah. you know, that, that, that is in that, and which obviously no different than cartels. I think that's where people... Well, they're all integrated. Yeah. It's the same organizations. But I think, you know, I think a lot of people, when they, they hear cartel and drugs and human trafficking, like they... they yeah, they, they think they, they're they, different. Well, that and they, I think that they put a level of seriousness much higher on cartel mm-hmm. and drug trafficking. Well, you do. You don't, you know, people are dying every day from the opioids, and a lot of the yeah. opioids are coming from down south. Yeah, but I think it gets minimized. You know? Yeah, it does, uh, big time. But, uh, you know, again, I, I didn't realize the, the magnitude with which uh, that was the case. So kind of crossing into today, um, you know, I, I had a, one of the co-founders of Deliver Fund, which is a big anti-human uh, trafficking and, and anti-sex slavery type of uh, foundation that's uh, here in Texas, a good friend of mine that uh, helps run that. What what type of involvement do you have now with with helping uh, those types of organizations? I, actually, you know what? After listening to your podcast, I was like, you know what? If I could do anything, because now that I'm, I'm doing some opinion pieces here and there, if I'm on the media, and if I could point them in the right direction, help them do anything, yeah, I'll, I'll help all day long. Yeah, well, that's awesome. I um, you know, outside of this, I actually, you know, has absolutely nothing to do with what this is, but I actually volunteer for Hire Heroes USA. Yeah. That's one of Brian Stan was kind of big in. Oh, yeah. And I help vets try to get hired That's into cool. the government. I do resume reviews, mentor, anything. So I always yeah. give them a plug. Yeah. But yeah, my next big thing is um, just use what I know and use any network I have to try to help these organizations out. Yeah. No, I think it's fantastic. And I love to see, you know, veterans using their skill sets, which admittedly are pretty fucking specific, you know, and... and it's hard, I think, a lot of times for a lot of veterans to, to find where their skill set can, can mm-hmm. really be applicable in a positive way. Uh, and so I, I love to see that, uh, that you're doing that. What, uh, in terms of government service, where, where are you at now and, what, and what's going on? I got a few years left, and then I'm just going to focus. But can you talk about what, what it is that you do now? No, yeah. we won't talk about yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> I do teach community college. I yeah. love teaching yeah. community college. Oh, and actually, yeah, I teach an immigration law this semester. Yeah. Really? Homeland Security, Immigration Law, Criminal Justice. That would be an interesting class, no doubt. Yeah. Um, a couple of just kind of big ticket items I have that I'm curious to get your take on, uh, again, that are kind of big buzzwords within the media and political spectrum, is, is sanctuary cities. Um, I, I, I'm absolutely against sanctuary cities. Yeah. I mean, can you talk about the, the impacts in terms of the, of the struggles from uh, an ICE or Border Patrol type of agent's perspective of, of how – how how it is that uh, that a that they run and and b um, you know what what your opposition to them are. Well, the sanctuary cities a lot of times what uh, let's say you're going to use a San Francisco, they're not going to share any arrest data or anybody in their custody with ICE. I.e., like if they pick someone off the street because they're saying what they're how they legitimize is saying well nobody's going to come forward with any crime. Yeah. The problem is they're arresting real criminals. And then releasing them to the street rather than deporting them. Yeah. And when you have a criminal in custody, 
you know, I, I was a fugitive operations supervisor, meaning I could, I had a team, I ran Delaware, and we would go out and we'd look for criminals. And if I was sending my guys or girls out to a police station where you're going from one secure area into our custody, it's, it's a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. Now, what's happening is the police will release a criminal, and then it's ICE's responsibility then to go out and find them in their own domain. Jesus. And it's just, you know, would you rather walk up to a door where a guy could be sitting behind it with a gun, or would you rather just go to a police station and just yeah. pick him up? Yeah. I mean, to me, that I guess I don't get, um, you know, the law enforcement component is that, I mean, I work with LEOs all over the country regularly, you know, ideally, or not ideally, um, most of the time with with canine units, but they're still all, you know, from, cut mm-hmm. from the same cloth. And I, I find it really difficult to wrap my head around the law enforcement entities in some of these cities being on that fucking same page. And, you know, it's it always comes down to the field person. The field police officers love working with ICE. because yeah. And that's the thing is when I did that Camden thing, uh, so I did a detailed Camden for 60 days. And the main thing was to see how we could integrate ICE to get rid of like gang problems or targeted in areas. Would ICE inf- enforce removal specifically? Could we use those resources to target criminal aliens or gang members? And a lot of the police were like, oh, I didn't even know you could do that. Yeah. It's like we have a block where we have a bunch of LSALs or something like that who we we um, we just can't get rid of. We can't do anything because we don't have any other thing. But maybe they have something in immigration. Maybe you could work with us. Yeah. And I found more and more police want that type of resource available to them. But I guess from you know just from from my standpoint, and I know I have no doubt a lot of listeners. How how does the sanctuary city exist though in in terms of it actually on the ground being handled that way. I mean, I know if, if I was a, a fucking cop. Cops are going to lose their job if they work with ICE. So, so it's just basically that, like, I mean, who's dictating that? The mayors? And the yeah, it police? comes up through the, it's the politicians. Yeah. I mean, that's fucking criminal. Well, you know, I used to meet with the uh, non-governmental organizations in Delaware, and I'd be like, look, if you have a someone that's been raped, abused, um, beat by their spouse who's a, a criminal alien, and they happen to, in the female, let's say it's a female. Uh, nine times out of ten, it's a female who's getting raped or beat. I'm not going to determine her alienage. You don't. Nothing says that I have to go. Hey, are you here illegally? No. They can come in. They can give me the information, the license plate, anything. Yeah. To where I can go out and arrest the bad guy. Yeah. And I started building those relationships. And a lot of ICE people build those relationships. But a lot of the local uh, police, they just their hands are tied. They're tied, or they don't realize some they of the things. They don't realize. They can do. Yeah. God, that's a fucking. That's frustrating to hear. All right, so moving on, um, the caravan, uh, which I'm curious <laughs> to get your take on uh, on the caravan. To me, it it seems odd, I guess. Um, you know, like there's got to be more to the story in terms of how does a group of, of a couple thousand people have the fucking resources to get Think from... Think about that. Think about I mean, it. Yeah, that alone. Like if, that if, drives me wild. Yeah, I mean, if you have that kind of resource to go from there to here and, and be fed and transported and, and like think about the logistics to move a division. No, I know. I mean like how do you do it? When you're talking like a thousand, two thousand miles you're gonna move a division of troops. Yeah. And now you're moving a division of people. Yeah. Well and so to me that that's half of it. The other half is that from an like if you're going off of just the the textbook excuse as to why they're here, which is seeking asylum, you have that in Mexico, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. you're 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 outside of your quote unquote war zone. You know, then people's like, well, they, they, you know, we want to give them the the chance at the American dream or give them the opportunity. And it's like, from my perspective, you know, it, it's kind of like the, 
the analogy or the example used on an airplane is that if you're uh, you know, you lose lose pressure in all the fucking mass and you have four kids with you, like mm-hmm. put your own mask on first. Yeah. Because if you can't help your kids, then all of you are going to fucking die or whatever, you know. And so to me, like there, there's an element of, of that that analogy, I think, that's kind of apt and, and applicable in terms of, well, you can only help so many fucking people. And, and you get to the point where if you help so many and bring so many people in that now you, you've fucked everybody over, uh-huh. you know, because there are billions of people that if given the opportunity to come to this country, Look they would do it. Europe, yeah. Australia, everywhere. Yeah. The thing is the foothold. They, it's like a beachhead right now. They're yeah. trying to get a foothold because right now they know if they come in, they may have like a DACA type thing. They might have uh, some sort of way to get a path to residency or citizenship. Mm-hmm. But until we say, hey, no, you're not going to get it at all. Right now, the optics in, in Central and South America, if you get here, you may have something available to you. Yeah. It's the, uh, it's like fucking dumb and dumber. It's the, uh, like, what are the chances of a guy like you and a girl like me? <laughs> like one in a million. So you're saying there's a chance like, I mean, exactly. that, but that's it is like, even if it's far fetched is that if, if they have some opportunity and they know that there mm-hmm. is a chance that they may get to stay here, like they're going to do it. And so, um, one of the questions I have, I'll skip around a little bit since you brought it up is what, what is the solution then in terms of of the policy you know we we, we'll talk about you know the 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 physical mechanisms border more agents etc that but but what what do you think the policy solution is to immigration as a whole piecemeal it all out i mean when they tried to drop this border wall funding thing the other day that last minute so the government was shut down they came up with 1100 pages i mean the book is you know 200 pages let's let's piecemeal it out let's do 20 pages at a time and fix it the other thing is to we have 10 consulates in Mexico, 17 total in Central America and Mexico. Let's sign an executive order where we say, hey, you know what? If you have a legitimate asylum claim, you come to one of our, we'll send down immigration judges and asylum officers for deploy them. If you have a legitimate claim, come to one of these areas, apply, and we're going to adjudicate it within seven days or whatever. Yeah. Adjudicate them outside the ports of entry. Because what happens is, let's say they come up to a port of entry and they say, you know what? I have an asylum claim. No. Say Mexico. Well, I'll just walk around the border. Yeah. Do you think that from a policy standpoint, like what's what's the limit? You know, I mean, how, how what many is the limit? How many people do you take in? I mean, because to me, like that's where we're at. Is that if you water down our resources to a point in which now they're they're so watered down to where they're not effective, now you fucked everybody over. Yeah. You know, and, and there is a point. And, that, they, and a lot of times, well, they're just coming here to work, the menial jobs that nobody else wants. Well, then, you know, change the law to where. They come across for two to three years, and then they have to go back to Mexico and then reapply, and then we could run their criminal histories and everything else. Yeah. So then we have a documentation process. But, I mean, to me, even then, there's still like there still has to be a limit. Yeah, there it is. You know, because there, there's yeah. people from other continents that would come here every, in, in the millions. Every continent. You know, yeah. so like, I mean, to me, like that's that from my perspective, which you know the listener can can value what uh, how valid that is but you still like to me that's step one is that you have to decide okay based on our population based on our mm-hmm. resources land mass economy you know funding etc there there's there there has to be determined a limit of which like we can only allow x number of people to come here i don't give a fuck how qualified you are it's, how shitty of a situation yeah, it's you're simple in mathematics how much money are we giving to taxes how many people are on social programs right now? How many people are homeless? 
How many veterans are in need? How many can we fix everything? Yeah. So, I mean, to me, that's my point is that like until you, you identify what the fuck that is, all of this is kind of irrelevant, you know, because you're, you're talking about, you know, numbers that you don't really have your arms around. And so, you know, not at all. You can't even tell how many people the figures were 11 million. I was in 05. Yeah. I mean, to me, it, it, it's really, it's honestly like if you, if you think about it from a number standpoint, which is, is easy to transfer it over into money. You know, it's kind of like the, it, the our government finds itself in that same position. But to to boil it down to a family, it's like saying, you know, we have the we have an we have a, a fucking American Express black card, you know, and and we're not thinking about the purchases we're making. Like we're just like, ah, fuck it, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, I'll take a Rolls Royce. Like, dude, you make thirty eight thousand dollars a year, you can't afford that. But it doesn't matter. Like yeah. that's what I want. Like that's that's well, kind of that mentality. These quote unquote decision makers are not seeing the reality. Yeah. You know, they're not going to the borders. They're not going to our inner cities. They're staying in their little bubbles Yeah, where everybody's telling them, hey, you know, uh, you're just an all-around great person. You're doing all the good things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to me, it comes back to full circle of when we first started is, um, you know, there, there has to be a, an understanding of, of what is taking place down there for you to have a valid opinion. And, and to me, like it's people like you and, and people on the front lines that, that need to inform and dictate the information to the people that have the, the power to make those decisions. They should be listening to you guys, just like with guns, just like with drugs. I mean, uh-huh. don't ask me about fucking abortion and the right to choose. Hey, I've never I, been I pregnant. I out there all the time. I will go down and testify all day long. Yeah, but, but they're not asking you is no, the problem. No, they would never will. And, and, and that's the problem is you got these self important self-righteous fucking assholes that uh, that think they're way smarter than they are and it's well, dangerous the, the other thing that drives me nuts is these photo ops at the wall yeah and in the middle of the day when there's nothing going on yeah <laughs> in, in a benign area anyway mm-hmm. with a bunch of four-star fucking assholes blowing smoke up their ass and whatever yeah um it's frustrating uh we've talked a little bit about the wall um obviously it, it seems to me like you're a fan of of all of the above, you know, walls where it makes sense, way more fucking people being the biggest thing. Is that what Mm -hmm. you'd say is kind of the biggest solution is more people? Yeah, but there's a problem with that. And the problem is you can't hire enough. Yeah. Everybody's having a hiring crunch right now because, you know, it's tough finding people like legitimately either one want to work on a border, two can pass the process to get into Mm -hmm. the border patrol or become a special agent. And three is just, there's not enough money. Yeah. So let's uh, let's throw a hypothetical uh, curveball at you here. Is that uh, Doctor Piccolo is now Dr. the fucking Piccolo. president? What do you do? What do I do? Is I uh, what, what is your methodology for fixing this fucking mess, top to bottom? Put the right people in the right room and fix it, and stop. You know, it's 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 the military decision making one hundred and one. It's all these other different processes. Just sit down and talk to the people on the ground. The take. Speak to the subject matter experts, and we're not talking to these Dr. Piccolos or Dr. anybody else. Speak to the people that are out there. Hey, you, you can bring a Dr. Piccolo, and that's cool, whatever. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> you could uh, speak to the people on the ground, speak to the people who know it, and learn it. Don't just uh, this flash mob media type stuff where you're like, oh, you know what? Screw it. We're not going to do that. We're not going to work with anything with a T in front of it and, and a P. And, you know, we're not going to work with Trump. Yeah. We're not going to get anything done if it's Republican. We're not going to get anything done if it's Democrat. Think about it outside the box and just and start working on little pieces at a time. Yeah. Put put politics aside to start. Yeah. Yeah. No, amen. Um, 
Well, it's all good shit. I, um, you know, we could spend fucking days talking about the intricacies of each one of these topics. Um, I am curious. I know there's probably some people that, uh, if you have the ability, you know, where can people find you to either have you come speak or how, how do people get a hold of you to, uh, you well, know, they could watch the mic drop podcast. Fucking hey, they could. Uh, <laughs> uh, is there, like if somebody said, Hey, I want you to come. Yeah. Speak I'm on Twitter. Me. I'm on uh, I like Facebook and Instagram a lot. Yeah. So on Facebook, I'm uh, official Jason Piccolo. I like Instagram, Jason Piccolo. My book details are jpiccolo.com. I'm on Amazon now. Kindle's coming up. Um, and then I'm doing an Audible, so you'll be hearing my voice a lot. Nice. And the uh, book comes out March 15th. And then, uh, yeah, I'm working with Nick here and there yeah. on this book. So. Okay, and you guys have a couple of projects coming up, uh, co-projects co too, right? Yeah, I'm working on another book called The Protectors. Yeah. And uh, it's going to be more, what I'm going to try to do is Pretty much what we were talking about today. A lot of people don't understand what's going on at the border, and they don't know all the different pieces. Yeah. So my my snapshot in my head is I want to have a book that focuses on one area of the country. I'm probably going to use San Diego. <clears throat> it's going to focus on a – it's going to be nonfiction again. Um, it's going to be called The Border Enforcers, The Protectors Slash Border Enforcers. And I'm going to talk to the police on the border, ICE, uh, CBP, DEA, Diversion investigators, a lot of people don't know DEA has diversions, former district attorneys, U.S. attorney's office, anybody that deals with that border, and just write a book about it so yeah. people could read it and know what these the border reality is. And, and so with that, I mean, is that uh, something that you anticipate coming out? Uh, I'm going to give it about um, probably about four months. Okay. Just give me some crack and rum. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Fucking A. Um, all right, so a lot of the, the excerpts that we pulled and, and the subject matter that we talked about, I want to reiterate it. Uh, the book is called Unwavering, and the subtitle is A Border Agent's Journey from Hunter to Hunted. Uh, it comes out March 15th. Um, again, you can find it on Amazon, right? Yeah. Uh, pick it up. There's a lot of really cool shit in here that, that, again, like even with the amount of experience I've had working with police departments, canine units, you know, different government agencies of, of kind of a – a wide swath. There's still a lot of things that I did not know that uh, I found fascinating in this book. I, I, again, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to, to come up here. I super appreciate uh, uh, everything that you've done uh, and continue to do for this country, a fucking patriot. So I, Thanks, I, I appreciate you coming. Nah, this is, I love yeah, Texas. Yeah. Before we wrap up, I want to mention if you have a dog, uh, join teamdog.pet and get your fucking dog trained. It's 99 bucks a year. I'm tired of the excuses. If you can afford to have a dog, one, you owe it to yourself. You owe it to the dog to be able to train it. That's what the online lessons are for. So just go sign up. We have the CBD oil, uh, trichosupplements.com, which is uh, both available in full spectrum and isolate at 500 milligram and key lime and lemon lime, respectively. Uh, check that out. Uh, go to trichosupplements.com to see all of the, the different benefits. We've got food and treats coming out uh, very, very shortly. Uh, just go to trichos.com, T-R-I-K-O-S. Uh, to find out all the info on the food and treats that are coming up, as well as a from-the-ground-up designed dog crate uh, that's going to be this, about the same size as a very kennel 500 that uh, is for the Houdini escape artists. Uh, if you want to have to buy one crate for the rest of your life, this is that crate. We'll have uh, first aid kits um, that are manufactured uh, solely for Trichos that are, again, designed by me that are going to coincide with the canine first aid certification process that you can get on the Team Dog website, as well as becoming uh, certified for canine CPR. 
Uh, we've got Tricos franchises that are coming out very shortly. Uh, also, go to tricos.com for information on that, as well as merchandise. If you want Tricos merchandise or mic drop merchandise, uh, just go to the Tricos website and uh, click on the shop, and you can get T-shirts to support, as well as the podcast, certainly last but not least. I'm not on Patreon. Uh, if you want to support the podcast, that's what uh, helps keep it going. Go to tricos.com and uh, uh, I'm sorry, mikeritland.com and uh, and click on the podcast link and you can uh, you can support us that way. I certainly appreciate it. That's all of my housekeeping news for that. Again, Dr. Piccolo, can't thank you enough for coming. Um, anything you want to add as a as a last minute alibi before we roll out? Now, check out uh, Higher Heroes USA. Higher Heroes USA. So if you're a vet looking for a... And that's a H-I-R-E, not higher like getting high, right? Yeah, none of that <laughs> stuff. Yeah. No more dope. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, check it out. You get resume advice. Everything is free. Um, I volunteer. I don't get paid for it. I don't get any... Maybe I'll get a cool hat someday, but that's yeah. it. Uh, other than that, uh, yeah. So cool. all you got. All right. Well, again, I appreciate it. Uh, for all you listening out there, can't thank you guys enough. I always like to end on saying I uh, continue to be humbled by your support and appreciate uh, everybody tuning in uh, episode after episode to hear us flap our gums and talk. It is because of you guys that we exist. And until next time, this is Mike Drop. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.